Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. On the podcast today, we have lots of folks who I'm going to let introduce themselves in a moment. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast in the lands of the Comox, Homoko, Klehus, and Klaaman First Nations, who were one borderless nation before we settler colonists came in and separated them into reserves. Yesterday was a big day for all four of those nations as they all, I've got a video which I'll, I'll share in the show notes of, of the four First Nations uh, on their annual uh, canoe journey. So every, every year, I think it's every year. Um, uh, I, should, I should double check that fact. But every so often, all of the nations of the Coast Salish people, which are all the indigenous tribes from, I think, all the way up to like Haida Gwaii in the northern in northern BC, all the way down to, to I think to Oregon, maybe into California, and over to Hawaii even, um, go on a massive. Uh, canoe pilgrimage to uh, sort of um, what's a sport? reenact ancient tribal uh, canoe journeys they used to take. Um, and it's a big sort of ceremonial event and they all get together and do a couple days of, you know, meetings and ceremony and whatnot, but they're all paddling in, 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 in tribal carved canoes and, um, all the way, all the way from all these locations. So down, down the Atlantic Ocean, down the side of the Pacific Ocean, um, and uh, uh, all hand done, no motors. Um, and anyway, they all, uh, they all, they all slid into Muckleshoot, uh, Washington, uh, yesterday afternoon. So they all made it. And uh, so, just wishing them uh, a good weekend of, of, of ceremony and joy. Um, so today's episode. It's kind of centered around uh, an article that came out uh, not that long ago, uh, officially published April 2023 in Behavior Analysis and Practice, which seems to be one of the few journals um, that, uh, that tends to pop, uh, publish a lot of this uh, this good work around uh, cultural everything in our field, um, uh, whether it be cultural responsiveness, humility, competence, safety. There's seven or eight more terms now, um, just to confuse us all. Um, but uh, uh, these folks published an article called A Contextual Behavior Framework for Enhancing Cultural Responsiveness and Behavior Service Delivery for Latino Families. And I think it's that last two words that kind of makes this uh, uh, such important work because uh, there isn't, as, you, as we will learn, there isn't a whole lot of uh, research right now um, except the stuff published by some of the folks in the, on, on the podcast today that uh, addresses uh, uh, behavior analysis service delivery for uh, uh, Latino families. Um, and uh, I'm honored enough to have all, uh, all five of the authors on today, which is uh, amazing that we were able to get everybody together. So thanks everybody for coming on the podcast. Maybe we'll start by just some introductions, kind of, kind of maybe going clockwise, clockwise around my circle. I have here with uh, Luisa going first. Oh, thank you, Ben. Thank you so much uh, for this opportunity. Um, well, um, I am Luisa Cañon, and um, I am originally from Bogota, Colombia. Um, I moved um, 
from Colombia um, like in 2002, so it's been a while. I moved to Reno, Nevada uh, to pursue my PhD at um, the UNR program. And, and that's how everything started. Um, and I, I remember that, um, that, well, basically my work in applied behavior analysis um, started with, um, you know, with clients from the predominant culture. And, and of course, you know, by moving here, there was a huge uh, cultural shock. And mm. especially when you are moving like already a little older. <laughs> so um, so I began working with these families and trying to get uh, or find my way around, you know, working with these families, adjusting to, um, you know, to all the cultural aspects. And um, and and it was it was a hard thing. It was it was really difficult. Um, it was really difficult because I, of course, speak with an accent. And and some children who did not have any uh, vocal, you know, verbal behavior, um, will ended up speaking like I do, right? And parents sometimes will oppose that. And so anyway, a lot of experiences like that started uh, shaping up my search for uh, you know working with Latino families. So I ended up then serving some families in the Tahoe Lake area or Lake Tahoe. I don't know what the order is. <laughs> And so I started working with them and then feeling like, oh, okay, this is my niche. This is this is how I can actually show up uh, fully, you know, as a human being and as a clinician. And and I think from there, I I started focusing on my work with this cultural group. So, um, so anyway, I finished behavior analysis. Then I moved into clinical psychology. Um, that was in California. And in California, there's a lot of um, well, um, Latinos, and um, and so I co-founded a behavioral services agency, and I ended up serving. And I think to the day, I think ninety percent of the clients are Latino or from other cultures than the predominant, and so so it it became so. Um, so easy for me, like I did not have to do much effort in working with them or in adjusting. I didn't have to play the game of adjusting pretty much. And so it felt very natural. And then I started thinking, why is that? I mean, besides culture, besides the culture, you know, uh, what was what was there that made it so like joyful and so natural and so flowing? So so then, you know, from there, um, I I started um, looking at not only me as a Latina, uh, but what other aspects were playing a role in having this, you know, work to be as meaningful as, you know, for the families, but also for myself. And so then I started becoming obsessed with the therapeutic relationship and and that aligned with, you know, Latino cultural values, especially, you know, sympathy and personalism and familyism. And and I I think that um, those were things that I always really fought to bring into you know the therapeutic uh, you know setting, and um, so anyway I I know you asked me for the introduction and I don't know why I went there but anyway I apologize because you know this is messy but oh well so um so anyway so I I think that's that's kind of like about it I then my focus became that and then. 
Um, I started collaborating with Natalia and with Patricia and Sebastian and later Mariela. And we started putting panels together about this topic and, and we really wanted to share with the community our experiences. Um, that doesn't mean that our experiences were always great. Uh, it also meant that we had, uh, you know, perceived in the work with families barriers that we had to kind of check ourselves in order to understand what was at play and how uh, we needed to, you know, either go back to our roots and, um, and, and make adjustments as necessary in order to serve these families, um, you know, the way that they deserve. Um, and I think that was the, you know, that was the beginning of, uh, of this paper. Um, so, yes, I, I totally went the wrong way. But anyway, I'm going to leave it up to here. Otherwise, I'm going to keep jumping branches, you know, in different branches. <laughs> Luis, I loved it. Um, that was the best intro ever. So uh, <laughs> that's a good model for everybody else. No, that, that, that's what I mean. I love hearing. I love hearing sort of all these little pieces because they they uh, they really you know tell it tell a story. What why uh, why did you come? Well, two questions. Um, were you doing this kind of work at all in Colombia originally? Um, and 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 why did you decide to come to the states in the first place? Oh, so I I did um, six years of clinical psychology uh, from a behavioral perspective in Bogota. And but I wanted to study something um, specific that was more uh, verbal behavior, rule of behavior, all these um, aspects that were not available there. There wasn't a doctorate program back in the day, you know, over there. So um, and I was really interested in, you know, the work of uh, Dr. Linda Hayes. Um, so, yeah, so that is why I decided to move and and. Yeah, that's it. So I have always been a clinician and just wanted to, um, yeah, to expand on that particular area. And then, yes, I guess, um, I guess it was out of, you know, curiosity and, and more, you know, professional development. Um, and yeah, that, that's why mm. I'm here. Cool. I'm hoping I'm having you and uh, Evie Gould on uh, soon. And so hopefully maybe we can dig more into your 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 Columbia experience on that one. And I know uh, I, 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 I kind of would love to just spend the podcast uh, hearing more about your introduction because it sounds so awesome. Um, and uh, and a lot a lot of little uh, sneaker points there related to the article, too, that I think we're going to be able to touch on pretty quickly. Uh, next on my clock is Mariella. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is barrier. Well, thank you again for, for this opportunity and, and being amongst everyone again. It's, it's always an honor to, to hear about everyone's experiences. And I think as Lisa touched on, we're always learning about, okay, that experience didn't go well or walking into to a situation of, okay, this is what I thought needed to happen. So I, I always love to, to continue learning with this group. So I appreciate all of you. Um, so my name is Mariela Hostetler. I was actually born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I've actually have made my way around back, back where I started. So I'm currently there now. Um, I, both of my, and I, I like to just kind of get, throw this out there as a sense of a little bit of background of how I grew up as well. Um, both of my parents actually immigrated from El Salvador as well, um, 
So both of them are, are from here. My mom emigrated a little bit later on. So she was, you know, she had me right at the, at the start over here. Um, but I, uh, fast forward to a little bit of my experiences. I moved to Reno to do my undergrad and essentially I thought I wanted to do clinical psychology, but then, you know, took a couple behavioral classes, behavior analysis courses, and got my feet wet and started working with adults with developmental disabilities. Um, got, you know, got a little bit of experience there, started working with kids with autism, primarily wanted to continue my education journey. And I moved to Southern Illinois to do my master's. And from there, I think that's where I started working a little bit more with families. Um, and I started in a, a little bit of a rural area in Southern Illinois. So not I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of diversity essentially with a lot of the families that we were working with, but occasionally there would be one or two, right. That would, that would pop up. And I think at the time, so the RBT, so I never got my RBT credential that wasn't around necessarily. So I was, everyone always asked me, what, what was, what was your role? It was more of a behavioral specialist, right. Or interventionist at the time. So that's how I was getting my experience working with families, working with kids. And, you know, often, and and I think this happened, you know, throughout just families that I would work with is I would often be paired with the Spanish speaking families because I was usually the one who was able to speak with those families. Um, so that was often my role, right? The translation, what translating to others, what, what does this family need? What, you know, how, how do we get them services? Um, so I started, I think, early on noticing that that barrier, right, of, okay, I'm, I'm constantly acting as translator. And at the time, right, I'm, I'm, I still didn't know all these things that we needed to do with families. Um, so I think that got me a lot, exposed a lot and kind of noticing of, okay, these things aren't necessarily working with with so many families, right, and trying to get an understanding of what do families actually need? Are these services making sense? And I think as I went on, so that was, a, you know, again, firsthand experience, finished off my education over, I ended up getting my PhD in behavior analysis uh, at Reno. Um, and again, a lot of my work that I centered around there, and as I, as I was almost at my tail end of really focusing on, okay, how do we adapt the services that we're doing? What's working? What needs to be changed? Um, because again, we always talk about a, a not one size doesn't fit all, but how do we also extend that to to meet the needs of culturally diverse families? So I, I think that's a little bit of background of, of me and and how I got here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's great. That's awesome. Um, being kind of put into that translator role all the time was that something you? you liked i i, I just i, I talked to some folks who are often you know the only one that sort of you know looks like them and whatever company they're at and they often get kind of pigeonholed into these roles i think to me and and i you know to some degree that sometimes happens still mm. um you know I, I still do services in the community and often it's well, you know, you're you're going to be a great fit for this family. You speak Spanish, right? Um, and I, to be honest, I I love that role. I think I, I always have felt 
like in like needed by that family. Like it'll it, it the, almost like that calling of okay, I I can talk to this family. Why I I'd rather be that person if if I'm able to help them better. And I know that sometimes the first almost like that gateway of of com- communication, right? As we'll get into the the article and some of our experiences. So I from my perspective, I have always loved it because it, I know it's it's a good place for families to to one communicate and feeling comfortable with someone who who can talk to them for for most families. So I I don't I've never had a problem with it at all. No, right on, right on. Uh, Patricia, Patricia, sorry. <laughs> Hello. My bad. My bad. My bad. No, that's okay, Ben. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, and yeah, my name is Patricia Guerrero. And um, uh, where do I start? I did my undergraduate in Bogota, Colombia, and I studied um, psychology and education. Um, then I, I did a little bit of community work. I didn't want to be, uh, you know, a class teacher. Um, I was always m- more inclined to work on social issues. Um, and so I was exploring uh, opportunities to do a master's degree in the U.S. Um, and so I traveled to learn English and to explore the master's in the U.S. And I spent there, you know, a couple of years. And while I was um, studying, I, I found community groups and community centers and um, and uh, yeah, work with families and family support worker. Um, so got to learn a little bit of how Hispanic community, um, you know, worked, lived, uh, etc. Um, and then I, um, I applied to different master's degree, but then I, I, um, I was accepted uh, in the UK for the London School of Economics. So I did social psychology there. Mm. Um, and and so I had moved to the US and that was a cultural shock. Um, and then I thought, okay, well, I've done it once. It's going to be easier to move again. So, but then it was, you know, another cultural shock to get into the UK culture because it's, uh, well, the, the language was a lot easier. Um, still, you know, the customs and um, everything, it's, it's different and I had to adjust so yeah I became a parent so I'm a mom of two um, adolescents and um, then I was just became interested in in the the community work and 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 education work I I fell kind of in the um, special educational needs field and having studied a little bit of um, behaviorism um, I decided to enroll a master's degree at the UNR um, in applied behavior analysis. So completed that, and and that's how I, you know, I'm providing services in in the UK to the um, mainly. My focus is is mostly with parents, um, and and uh, in the UK, I don't necessarily only work with with um, Latin Americans or the, the Spanish speaking communities, but other ethnic minorities. And that has been my focus uh, because of the need of adapting, you know, what we do to to serve, um, you know, the families that that find that th- those extra barriers um, to, to access and services. So that's that's how I got where I am. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So your work. Uh... Are you in the States right now or are you in the UK? 
I'm in the UK. You're yeah. in the UK right now. Oh, wow. Well, what time is it? <laughs> uh, it's a lot later than for you guys. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's afternoon. Okay. Well, th- thanks. Thanks for doing this. That's 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 awesome, Natalia. So hi, uh, everyone. Uh, thanks again, Ben, for extending an invitation. Mm. Um, I was this whole time I've been listening. I'm just trying to think about like what to say. Like I feel like I've kind of shared a little bit before about myself, but I'm like, what what kind of version should I give this time? Um, so. I don't know. I'll just start talking and we'll see where that leads me. Yeah. Um, so I'm Natalia Byers. I am um, currently a the program director for the online programs at Southern Illinois University. We have a behavior analysis and therapy program, uh, master's level. Um, we have different programs there. And I'm also a clinical assistant professor there. Um, born and raised in the Los Angeles area. Um, both of my parents immigrated from Central America. So my mom is from Guatemala, which is a country under Mexico. And then my dad immigrated from El Salvador, which is a country under Guatemala. Uh, so, you know, sometimes people, you know, don't know that those countries exist. So I give that, you know, context because they're like, oh, mm-hmm. what part of Mexico is that? No, it's not part of Mexico. Um, so, um, let's see. I started off in the field um, kind of on accident, like I stumbled upon the class in my last, uh, year of my undergrad. And I took a class in the, like a capstone kind of senior class in behavior analysis. And I was like, Oh, i never knew about this. I think this is what I have been looking for, you know, my whole time in my undergrad. Um, and I eventually applied to a master's program over here in Los Angeles at California state university of Los Angeles. Um, it was, uh, it's a count, it's a master's in counseling with a focus on ABA. And I found that when I did my thesis, I was like, oh my gosh, I love doing research. I think I want to do this, you know, more. Um, so then I made the tough decision to leave home, leave family, um, and move to this, uh, what Mariella was referring to, this rural area, right, of Illinois, where um, not that much diversity and Honestly, like when I met, that's where I met Sebastian. And I was like, oh my gosh, the one person that speaks Spanish. So like, I'm not going to lose Spanish. I'm going to be able to practice it more than once a week or whatever, you know, when I talk to my parents. Um, So um, I decided to go over there because I was interested in ACT and um, RFP, uh, those kinds of things. I was exposed a little bit in my master's program to ACT and to RFP actually. Um, so I wanted to pursue, you know, that route. Um, and I think when it came down to my dissertation, I was like, I really want to focus on Latino families or Spanish speaking families. So my whole dissertation focused on, on that population, specifically from like an ACT RFP perspective. Um, and, uh, what else? I have worked as a clinician, so, um, I don't know if I've shared this story with you know Louisa presence but I when I was in my master's we had to do you know the field work hours and so I was looking at agencies to apply to and I remember coming across the agency that Louisa uh, mentioned that she co-founded and I remember specifically reading like their uh, uh, her bio and um, there was a mention of that she was from Colombia I was like that's I haven't come across that like that just stood out to me and I was like, okay, I think I want to go to this place, mm. um, you know, because 
I mean, I don't know, not that many people, right, maybe specify kind of if they are maybe born outside the U.S. where they are born. Um, so I'm like, okay, this is, this is, you know, I'm going to do this. And so, um, I was glad, I glad, I'm glad I made that decision because, um, uh, I worked with a lot of Spanish speaking families, a lot of, um, immigrant Spanish speaking families. Um, and I feel like that's where I learned a lot. Um, and that's probably kind of where maybe it inspired some of this work, um, you know, my time with, with those families. Um, and because the majority of the fields I write are probably clinicians. So, um, that's probably right. Another reason why I got into this work. Um, but I think that's it. Natalia, you said uh, you were going to go to this place. Did you mean Columbia or did you mean Luisa's agency? <laughs> no, not yet. One day, one day I was going to Columbia. No, um, no, I meant uh, with uh, the agency that Luisa co-founded. Mm-hmm. What's yeah. that called, Luisa? What's that agency? Well, that's the Institute for Effective Behavioral Interventions. Okay. That's in Los Angeles. Nice. And Sebastian? Well, Ben, uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I have to say that it it is an honor to be with this amazing group of women. Uh, We have been working for a while on this topic, uh, on panels, the article, um, and it's it's a complete pleasure, I have to say. Uh, well, my story, I'm from Colombia. I'm from Bogota, from the capital. I I did my bachelor's in psychology. Uh, when I was doing my bachelor's, I was more focused like on research and I was helping some professors running some like basic research on avoidance or punishment or cooperation. So when I, when I was about to graduate from my bachelor's, I was like, okay, what I'm going to do? Um, so somebody told me, well, you know, you should try some behavioral therapy. I was like, no, but I'm not interested in therapy, but I'm going to give it a try. Uh, so I give it a try and uh, I love it. I really love it. I was a, I was a behavioral therapist over there uh, in an agency called uh, Horizontes. Uh, I really enjoyed the time with the, with the clients. They were learning so fast. Uh, they were making so much progress. Uh, so it was it was very reinforcing for me. Um, so then I just decided to continue with the graduate studies. And then I moved to the US. Uh, I remember that Dr. George Garcia, he suggested, well, you should try SIU. Uh, Dr. Rafael is a good option. So I check, I get in touch with her. Uh, and uh, then I moved to the U.S. I moved in 2016 to complete my master's. Uh, and it was really great because in Colombia, I was uh, working typically with children and some teenagers. But I remember that at that time with the um, under Dr. Raffles lab, uh, we were working on some acts uh, for teenagers and young adults. Uh, that's where we met with Natalia. Uh, it was it was really good to to have those sessions over there. Um, then I continue with my PhD, um, and I'm really interested in like in behavioral services to underserved populations. Uh, working on some uh, personal projects on perspective taking and development of self, uh, and that's my story. 
Well, that's a great story. Um, you know, I, Luisa, I was gonna wait till uh, you know you and I and Evie met, but I didn't realize I had uh, three folks from Colombia today. So I'm I'm gonna ask a couple of Colombia questions. Um, I've uh, I haven't really talked much about sort of well Colombia or really much in sort of South America besides Brazil. Um, I'm curious what it sounds like there's a there's a lot going on i mean um, there's obviously psychology programs and 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 behavioral therapy available and all those sorts of things what 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 are sort of um what does what does behavior analyst analysis look like in in colombia is is it more like i've seen in some of these other kind of uh, countries where outside of the u.s where it's you know it's more of like an experimental focus um or is it is, is it something different i know there's a lot of contextual behavior science stuff happening all over the world that's um, been happening for years and years and years that i that i'm just sort of being introduced to now um and you know are, are there are there is there funding for autism those sorts of things what, what what's uh what's what are things like down in columbia from for many of you well i'm gonna start yeah. uh in regards to uh, academia, I have to say that there are a couple of universities in the country that offer uh, behavior analysis courses as mm. part of the psychology program. Right. So uh, if you want to take a course on behavior analysis or something like that, that will be part of the psychology curriculum. Uh, as you were like suggesting, uh, most of the focus on behavior analysis in academia is focused on experimental uh, or research part. Uh, they have mostly uh, basic research. Uh, and now we have a new trend uh, of new programs focused on contextual behavioral science. So there are some options, yes. Uh, it's not the most popular um, perspective uh, in in Colombia but we but they have some options at this point so if you want to study behavior analysis in Colombia there are a couple of universities that offer uh, that perspective and so so how did behavior analysis then get to Colombia um you know sometimes it's often seems to be sort of like I heard a bit about Brazil like maybe like it's like Fred Keller took a trip or something uh, back in the day and and started things up did did he just do a whole south american tour or or you know how does sort of the columbia find behavior analysis in the first place i don't just want to talk all the time but i love this topic um uh, the thing is that in colombia uh the origin in my view uh, comes from Ruben Ardila, who is a professor who, I guess he came to the U.S. to complete some uh, studies, and then some other professors came to the U.S., and the field started to grow. Uh, one of the things that happened in Latin America is that women played an important role in the development of behavior analysis. So then some other uh, women in the field helped to build some programs, and that's how, in some way, the behavior analysis start in, start in Colombia. Right on. 
And I think, yeah, you're right, Sebastian. I think Ruben Ardila was, um, I think the the you know the person who began you know uh, bringing this focus. Um, I think he studied with Skinner, um, and and I think after him there was Leonidas Castro. Um, and when I went to the university there, that's the Conrad Lawrence University, and at least back in the day, that was the only program that was purely behavioral. And, and we had Leonidas as a, as a professor, um, and he developed his own you know, model of case consultation. Um, and, but everything, I remember first semester reading Skinner and not knowing about any other schools of thought, it was just behavioral, behavioral. And, and then, um, and I think he also started bringing people from the university to start going to conferences. At that time, I don't know if it still exists, but it was Alamoc. That was an organization, Association for Latin American, something else. And um, and and I remember having professors who always were bringing the literature from here, and and then you know translations and and much much more accessibility. Um, and at least that's how it was when I was, you know, there back in 1997. So, yeah. Wow. And what about autism? What's uh, sort of, what kind of two questions, I guess, what are services like, but also um, what's sort of just the, is, is there sort of a general sort of acceptance, awareness of autism in Colombia that's sort of maybe different? I know we talk, you talk in some of the research about, uh, you know, and it's not Columbia specific, but about how there's often a lot of, um, um, uh, you know, kind of spiritual or, you know, or, you know, other, other, other sorts of sorts of directions folks take uh, to, towards looking at autism besides sort of the, the usual kind of evidence-based stuff we see in the States. So I can't help you much with the behavioral origins um, mm. uh, in Colombia because my training was done after I completed my undergraduate. So I'm not sure how to develop that. But I, sure. I do know that um, uh, in terms of, um, you know, er early education and um, parents with children with autism, the services are quite, quite limited and, and rather spotty, depending on where, which area they live. Um, mm. And there are huge differences in terms of the, the service or, or, or how um, the needs are covered um, on, depending on the areas where you are or mm. where the family is from. Um, there are, the rural areas are hardly covered or, you know, have access to good services, mm. uh, mostly um, effective or, or yeah, more specialized uh, support is is uh, accessible in cities or, you know, depending of, um, um, yeah, the socioeconomical status of the, of the family, whether they can pay um, privately uh, for these services or not. Uh, so, Yes, it's, it's limited and it's quite, quite, you know, different. Um, uh, there are lots of um, um, myths and ideas and traditions and um, 
yeah, it is complex because it's, it's the traditional knowledge and, and what people say about the condition. But I, I think in general, acceptance has grown. Um, uh, it's, it's much better now than it was 40 years ago, like in a, you know, every single aspect, uh, people accept, um, all sorts of disabilities and, and neurodiverse conditions uh much better but i think there's still a lot of um um yeah resistance to change so yeah i think is, is would that be fair you guys think yeah the thing is that the this the health system in general is uh it's it's different from the one in the u.s uh so the the fam families in general, they face uh, different type of barriers. Uh, and that's something that we have to take into account. Uh, when we read a paper uh, published in the US, uh, in Colombia, we tend to think that those families were exposed to the same barriers, but the families in Colombia are facing a different socio-cultural uh, system. Uh, in Colombia, uh, in general, and just to be short, uh, the government has a list of uh, disease, uh, disorders, and the list of treatments that are approved for those specific uh, conditions. Uh, so in, in terms of autism, uh, we have to say that ABA services are not covered uh, and the family has to um, proceed with the legal system to ask the insurance companies to pay for those services. Uh, after they get a denial, uh, the judge orders the Colombian government to pay for those services. But that takes some time because you're fighting, you're fighting and so on. So... Uh, that's one point. And the second point is that we don't have enough uh, trained professionals to provide those services. Uh, in Colombia, we have uh, living in Colombia, uh, three or four BCBAs. Um, and not all of them are working uh, with, with clients. So I think... Uh, the problem is that we don't have enough uh, trained professionals and there is not a clear regulation on those procedures. So you can open a clinic saying that you can you are providing ABA services, but you don't. Uh, and this the family don't have uh, families don't have the knowledge on how to discriminate if the agency is providing a good service or not. Yeah, so that's uh, that's <laughs> to finish that that topic. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it just, uh, it, it's so fascinating because uh, I've had a lot of conversations with folks from, you know, a lot of different countries, uh, many of whom, you know, just sort of found behavior analysis in like the last 10 years. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and so services and awareness and acceptance and diagnosis are all so, so, so far behind. Um, and, uh, there, you know, there's, uh, there, there isn't even any services, um, there may still be three or four behavior analysts, often just one or two, um, mostly none at all. Um, um, 
and then so it's just interesting to sort of hear kind of where things are at. Also, I think for me at least, and maybe I, I'm sure there's others that have had this sort of bias as well. There's sort of an assumption that a country who's been doing behavior analysis for a lot of years, you know, like Brazil. I thought Brazil, I, I would have assumed Brazil would have had a massive autism program and and tons of autism services, but they have very little, uh, you know, there. But they've been doing sort of this experimental behavior analysis for so long, and so I think. It's it's definitely not safe to assume that just because behavior analysis exists in a nation that there'll be good autism services. You talked about uh, a little bit about uh, how the barriers are kind of kind of different. Actually, before I get to that, there's also you talked about sort of Patricia about sort of how kind of in the cities there's seems to be more services, and in the rural areas there isn't. You know. Well, that seems to be no different uh, in the U.S. or kind of anywhere else. Uh, I, I know there was, a, I think there's a reference in the in one of the articles to uh, uh, Rocio Rosales's article there on on uh, on sort of access to services. And I, I had her on the podcast. Uh, uh, we, we mostly talked about inner teaching, but we we dove a little bit into this article as well because I think it had just come out. Um, and she really talked about sort of how um, uh, you know Massachusetts. I think. I think she had said that Massachusetts was the most densely populated state in the U.S. in terms of behavior analysts. Like they had the most behavior analysts of anywhere, and yet uh, these rural areas still had no access to services and, and and no access to to people. So it's it's really interesting, sort of that kind of city city rural dynamic where you can have tons and tons of folks there and think that there's tons and tons of services and so obviously one barrier there is, is certainly um uh you know not having behavior analysts or really i mean it's really any profession we could say in kind of rural areas there's not enough and i live in a rural island and we're 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 at a point where we're going to lose our doctor soon and probably not get another one because no one wants to come here and so you know, I think this is sort of a, a cross field uh, kind of issue. But I'm wondering if we could maybe, I, I think a lot of the reason you're all doing this this great work is because of there's so many barriers that uh, that that folks are kind of facing um, um, in, uh, in, uh, in in getting these services. And I know, Mariella, you did, uh, you, had, you had put a paper out uh, a couple of years back that really kind of dove into a lot of what those barriers look like and really described them really well. Um, what, what, what are some of the, the, the big barriers um, that, that, that are faced by folks? Um, and I keep saying folks, so maybe I should step back even one more time here and decide, and, and you talk about a little bit about in the paper as well, about what we should call folks. Um, so um, in terms of kind of the identity, I mean, the paper itself says Latino families, uh, I know one of Natalia's papers talks about Latinx families. Um, you know, obviously the 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 paper and the and the call for papers that uh, what I had Natalia and Sebastian on was about Latina because we we're specific to sort of uh, women women in behavior analysis. So maybe before we get into the barriers and all that sort of thing. Um, we could just talk a little bit about um, names and identities and 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 kind of um, you know so maybe some language we should use for the rest of the episode anyway. So, what 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 is that identity and and uh, and 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 what what term should we be using? 
Are you a solopreneur running your business alone and need help getting more exposure to your target audience while growing your brand? At Beal Marketing Group, we specialize in delivering comprehensive marketing solutions tailored to your unique needs. Our team of seasoned experts excels in crafting creative strategies that captivate your target audience, build brand authority, generate high-quality leads, and streamline your business processes. Whether you're seeking a brand makeover, effective lead generation, or a plug-and-play solution that takes care of everything for you, we have you covered. Services can include strategy sessions, video editing, social media management, brand board development, and even a virtual assistant. When you choose Beal Marketing Group, you're partnering with a team of passionate professionals who treat your business as our own. We go above and beyond to understand your goals, target audience, and unique challenges to craft tailor-made strategies that produce remarkable results. Schedule your free discovery call today at bmgfreeconsult.com. That's bmgfreeconsult.com. The second secret word is Latinx. From my perspective, uh, so what was the question that you asked? Um, what what term should be used? Is well, I don't even know if I'd, I'm asking the right question here either, right? So, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess, yeah, I guess sort of the, the you know, the, the sort of, in terms of sort of just, this podcast what what kind of language to use um um it, it was part of the question but also you know in general like how, how do we sort of interchange those phrases is there a general phrase i mean it should there be a general phrase i know often that that's one of the other concerns is that we're we lump sort of all 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 folks from one background into a category. I just had a couple of uh, indigenous school psychologists on um, uh, last week um, that you know that are doing kind of kind of some work in this area, and we talked about even how the word indigenous is a real colonial kind of term because it's a term that we you know kind of non-indigenous folks lump them into as a category where there's actually. 587 recognized tribes and nations by the federal government and probably many many more that aren't recognized and and so really each of those communities is its own culture its own entity and and probably would never lump themselves into a category with the other 586 uh, tribes and nations you know if, if they kind of had their way so um you know is even using the phrase latino latinx latina um you know just a a a, a, a way a, a way to appease us colonizers or uh you know um uh so just just talking about kind of maybe what that identity is and um and and yeah and, and you know what's sort of the the best way to kind of you know talk about folks in these larger groups yeah i mean i think you you ask a good question i like i always say that just ask the person how they identify and use that term, um, which hints at, right, what you were saying of us trying not to lump people into one group. You know, like I personally identify as Latina, but I have friends who identify, you know, as um, like Chicano, like they're like Mexican-American or they identify, right, by their nationality, like, oh, I'm Central American or mm. I'm Hispanic, right? I'm Venezuelan, right? Um, depends on the person yeah um but I know there's a lot of uh terms that we tend to maybe hear or use um and you know I could I'll pass it on to someone else to talk about the terms but you know we 
some terms are like Hispanic, right? Latino, there's Latina, Latinx, there's Latin A. Those are the ones that I'm familiar with, mm. maybe the more common ones um, that tend to maybe lump, you know, people into groups. Um, and the difference <clears throat> ultimately between like Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin A has to do with like the gender. Um, but I'll, you know, pass it on to someone else if they want to expand on those topics. Well, it's interesting because uh, when we were writing the the the, the paper, uh, that was a discussion. Uh, because when we typically when you, when you move uh, from Latin America to the U.S., uh, you start getting all the paperwork, uh, and every time they ask about their race, and you are like, okay, they have. In the U.S., they have these categories, and those I'm not familiar with those categories. Those are not the categories that we use uh, in Latin America. So I have to, uh, in some way, engage in some self-awareness and, okay, here, what will be my identity? Uh, which one I'm going to use? Uh, because we, we use uh, different categories. Uh, any Latin American country, and you ask any person, random person at the street, hey, are you a Latino? The person will be like, yeah, but that's not a term that we typically use to refer to ourselves. Um, so it's uh, it's really interesting. Uh, and I, I agree with Natalia, uh, the best way to proceed in my view uh, is to ask, to ask the family, okay, how do you guys identify? Uh, and based on that, I will refer to you as X. Can it's I very add? interesting that you say, oh, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Mariela. Well, I was gonna, gonna add to, just add a little spice to this too. One, again, 100% agree asking, you know, individuals, asking families, because often, you know, I think, and even when we see a lot of, and, and I've done this in, in I, I've done a little bit of mix too. In some articles, I refer to folks as Latinx. And then in some, I refer to as, as Latino. And I think, cause we always at the start of when we start writing these papers or having these conversations, we'll, we'll write everything out. And, and I think even when it came to this paper at the very end, we were like, okay, is it good? Are we going to do Latinos? Are we going to do Latinx? And we kept going back and forth so many times. And, you know, ultimately this is what we landed on. But I wanted to also add to what, what Sebastian was talking about, that we're so ingrained in seeing all these government forms. And I think that has also played a lot of our, like even my own history, because even let's say 10 years ago, if you would have asked me, you know, how do, how do you identify Hispanic, right? That's that would have been my answer. And it's still a lot of answers, even for for a lot of and again, I'm not trying to to make this a, a general statement, but for a lot of families that I work with, you know, what are you Hispanic um, is, is typically their answer, because we've seen we often see this on, on government forms. Right. And often almost like this uh, process of, of elimination. Right. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not this so I'm I'm this this is the old the the last box that's left for me so this is what I identify um so I think that's that's evolved because again now I you know if someone asks me I, I'll say I'm Latina 
but that didn't that didn't come naturally. And I think it's it's almost that shift in our culture to now of how it's it's almost okay to to say I am Chicana. I'm you know from El Salvador. That's how you identify, and, and that's okay. So again, going back to people's different knowledge or or experiences, really, um, and history of of what they have identified in the past. So I think that's that's really interesting of of how often we we were so ingrained of this is what's been available or this is how I've answered so long and this is what I am because often too if you ask a family you know are you Latinx so many families have not even heard of that term before and they want to stick to to what they know or what they feel is right and that's and that's okay um but it's just interesting to see that that learning process over the years I just wanted to add uh, to what Sebastian said and Mariela that it is quite clear to me, um, uh, you know, the, the question of identity um, is huge and you get confronted every time you have to describe yourself, not at any other time, really, it's not relevant. It's only when you have to tick the box or when you are asked to like say what you are, what you identify with. But my experience in... Um, um, different European countries, especially the UK where I live, is that because um, Latin Americans is, is not a, a, a main ethnic minority, um, we are amongst the you know the the minor ethnic minorities. Uh, we don't appear in a list, so we're not given an option. So you're given you know many other that are others that are more prevalent, and um, that you always end up taking other. Uh, or, you know, kind of explain. And I, I'm never sure whether it's South American, Latin American. I can't, you know, many people refer to American, but I'm not. So is it South American? Is it, you know, it's just it's just a mixture of things. But I think it's, it's crucial to say that it depends on what is available so that you can tick and you can put yourself in one of those boxes. Um, so doesn't necessarily coincide with what you believe you are yourself. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it, it does seem like uh, also that the, the a lot of the terms you're we're using are also terms that, you know, were sort of imposed by colonization again. I mean, I don't think anyone ever thought they were Latin, right? <laughs> uh, you know, at any point. I mean, is, is it Latin like a, a European language um, anyway? Um, and uh and of course, American, you know, there's lots of problems there. Um, and so, you know, these these terms are, you know, have, have somewhat been been kind of pushed. And, you know, and maybe it's because of West, a Westerners need for categorization and hierarchy and and kind of and kind of all that sort of thing. Um, and I definitely get sort of, you know, the individual, but it, I mean, obviously it's going to make it's going to make it hard to to write papers when you're going to like, you know, uh, behavioral service delivery for, and what's your identity families, you know, uh, or, or to have like all 17 different words, um, you know, and, and I know it's getting, we're getting to the point where sort of the LGBTQ phrase isn't even going to fit on one line in a paragraph as we keep kind of adding more letters, which is great. I'm glad that we're inclusive of all of these, these terms, but um um, um uh, it would be it would be quite amazing to see sort of LC, you know uh all, all these different letters for 
for for different cultures kind of going on and going going forward. And I think for for this kind of work, you, you have to kind of start with um, some kind of group focus because you know it, it's it's really I mean it's the only way you're going to do it. I mean you're never going to get probably a, you know a set of a set of participants in a research study that all identify with the same you know sort of uh, term and and uh, you know again those are going to be too long to write on table of contents and journals and whatnot. And so you're you're going to need some kind of bigger term. Um, what I'm curious what led you led led to Latino as being the choice for this article, um, um, and and was it just sort of you know well we 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 got, we got to pick one and get this thing out there, um, um, and also what are I think a lot of folks are familiar with Latina you know it focuses you know on, on kind of kind of women and whatnot um, and Latino seems to be men but also everybody which I, I know that's part of the language and kind of how. You know some of that, some of that, the syntax kind of works. But then Latinx, I, I've read a little bit about. Actually, I kind of introduced that term by Natalia, um, um, in in that it's sort of a non-binary kind of gender inclusive sort of term. So I imagine something that a term that's probably not been around for too long. And I can see cert certainly, you know, more traditional folks not wanting to use that term. Maybe because you know we could certainly get into a tangent conversation about the sort of gender fluidity and acceptability in communities and whatnot. Uh, and then there's Latine, which I don't know what that term means at all. Um, so um, um, curious what that term means uh, and curious why you settled on Latino. Well, I'm going to start with the Latino. I think sure. uh, on purpose, we tried to use uh we try to refer to families in the paper rather than to refer to individuals. So we talk about Latino families, Latino families, uh, instead of referring to individuals. And in that way, we avoid that because the, the family per se doesn't have that identity. Uh, so that's why you will see like Latino families uh, commonly in the paper. And then we're gonna lead somebody else to explain the Latine. I guess to piggyback off what Sebastian just uh, mentioned, we actually do have a footnote in the paper, um, like the first page on the right-hand side, where we kind of provide a rationale for why we decided to use Latino. Um, so Sebastian mentioned that we um, are referring to, right, like Latin American families or families from Latin America. Um, and, um, you know, kind of uh, reading the literature, we came across a citation or a paper that said that families from Latin America don't even use the term Latinx. Um, and so I think, you know, we that's how maybe we ultimately ended up deciding to use Latino over Latinx, because right to our point previously of just whatever term people use, that's the term who should use. Um, and I think and, you know, I'm not really well versed in this topic of Latinx, Latina, um, but I think Latinx might have, is a term that originated from the States. Um, and right, like you mentioned, Ben, like it has to, it's an inclusive term for people who I don't, I, who identify as non-binary. Um, uh, because, you know, Latino is, re refers to um, males. Latinas, females, Latinx, 
uh, right, uh, non non-binary individuals. Like right now, if we were just, if I were to refer to just myself, Mariela, Sebastian, Luisa, and Patricia, we would, I would say, oh, you know, we would say Latinos because Sebastian is part of the group, even though there are four women. Um, so I think that's probably where the term Latinx originated from or part of the reason, um, right? Because it doesn't account for gender. Um, or I mean, it, I guess it doesn't account for right people who identify out, outside the gender binary. And then I think Latin A comes from, well, like in Latin American countries, how would you even pronounce that term like in Spanish? Um, so I think that that's where the Latin A comes from because that's maybe a letter, right? That's more often used in Spanish or in Portuguese, right? Um, so people might have an easier time pronouncing that uh, term. I don't know if I missed anything, but that's what that's my understanding of the terms. That makes sense, and I know. I mean, even the letter X in 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 Spanish is often has a different sound altogether than the Americans probably intended. So that that makes some sense as well. Probably sounds more like Latin A anyway. Mm. So thinking, go, going back to kind of the barriers that you kind of alluded to a bit, Sebastian, and uh, we're, we're saying that, Mariella, you wrote uh, a bit of an art, not a, bit of a, a really great article sort of describing um, um, a, a lot of these different barriers. And I think some of them are kind of common ones that we see sort of across folks from the global majority um but i wonder if we could just sort of uh touch a bit on kind of what are what what are some of these big barriers systemically that are that are faced by latinos um that require you know uh you know a kind of more specialized approach to things i can start with this one um i know just different perspectives you know we, we talked about I'll start with, you know, like language that's verb and that one we we talk about. It's the low-hanging fruit of mm. of a barrier, but it also just dominoes this this effect of other of other barriers that may come about it, right? Just how do how do we communicate? But other ones, you know, that I think that we start to unwrap as we're getting as we talk about them too, is just having families having the knowledge of of what autism is. Um and understanding, you know, what these signs are and what what it means for their for their seeing their kids going through this, I think is is step one. But also, even if we go back, and I don't know if we talk about this in in this paper specifically, but this is something that I've seen working with families is just coming to that realization, almost like that self awareness of. I, I need help. I need support. Is, is even getting there before we even get to families, I think, of them to, to reach out for support, I think. Um, and a lot of families have this, it's, it, can, it can be a cultural thing still till this day of no, we're, we're fine. We'll, we'll take care of it in-house. There's no need for us to get support. And I think that becomes a barrier in itself. So understanding that I need the support having the knowledge of, of of seeing the signs of of what you know my my child may may be may be different um but also then the knowledge comes in okay so 
I'm there. I need support. What do I do now? And for some several families too, is them understanding, you know, their their own rights of I I do have do have access to this, even though you know I I may not be a U.S. citizen. Is this going to cause more problems than good for my family? So it's it's sorry that I'm kind of ranting on on how these barriers, but but they evolve, right? And this is sometimes what families may feel in those moments of okay, you know what. I'm just not going to do this. This is stressful. This is hard. I don't know how to speak the language. We're okay. We're going to figure this in-house. So again, these these barriers are are almost like this uh, this ongoing circle that that continues to evolve. Um so even I think before we we get to see families, families are having this internal barrier with themselves of of asking for support. How do I get these? Do I do I qualify, you know? Are they are are, are there going to be a further uh, problems and challenges for me for trying to seek the support? So that's that's a little bit of I don't know if we we want to keep going with some barriers, but I think as as we come across families, these are some internal barriers that that they may be even facing. Um, and I think when we talk about a lot of these barriers too, it's it's not barriers with you know that a family just speaks Spanish. It's almost how our system is set up of how are we, have we made our system effective or, or open for families to reach out, you know, to have these resources available for them. So it's not necessarily a barrier of, of the language of the individual that, that becomes the barrier. It's the, it can be the system itself. Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Mariela, because for me personally, I think towards the tail end of when we were kind of finalizing this paper, I had that shift of like, you know, people speaking another language other than English isn't the barrier. People, you know, um, if they're undocumented, being undocumented isn't the barrier. It's the environment, the contingencies that we have set up that are the barriers that are causing these barriers. So it's not, you know, so sometimes I feel like at least for me, I was kind of like, if I, I don't know if I had to put the blame on something, right. I kind of put the blame on the person, but no, you like the blame comes from the environment. Right. And that's, you know, as a behavior analyst, you know, that kind of makes sense. And I didn't have that perspective until writing this paper. Um, so I'm so glad that that was mentioned because I think that that's helpful for people too to, you know, to have that perspective, especially when we talk about cultural cultural values um you know people may see certain values as oh well if a family comes with you know multiple family members to appointment this is a problem like mm. no it's not the problem um is it that we're not well equipped to you know accommodate everyone um you know those kinds of things so I just wanted to add that on there I also wanted to add that the shift was really important because it's from the practitioner's point of view, you you realize the um yeah, the barrier is the system. The barrier is not, you know, the problem is not the individual, but also we we also kind of understood that the way families uh, parents feel when they um present to services, they have these thoughts about themselves that they are the problem. So 
you know they you know they they often apologize because they they feel that they don't understand the language or they um it, it is their their fault and it is their problem that they do not speak the language or they don't understand the material or that they having to cope with several other problems so it is in their view that they are the ones that are unable to cope or have you know um yeah on their side yeah, I, I think that's really, really important. And um, because in, imagine, imagine you coming to another country and then finally asking for help, right? And then being told, um, okay, well, you need to just contact, for instance, the Department of Children and Families or like Department of Developmental Services or the Regional Center. I used to work for the regional center for for many years, and that was a, a while ago. And 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 again, my focus was Latino families. And and I I remember that I I developed this behavioral orientation, like behavioral services orientation for these families, because I could see how they were spoken on the phone. I just go to this department, just go there, but talk to who? Like, I experienced that. I experienced that coming here. Do I need to get a driver license? What do you mean? Like, driver license, isn't that your ID? Okay, and, and so where do you go? And who do you talk to? And what are the questions that you need to ask? But you only go through that until until you are there. And then, they, and then people also expect that you be, be independent. But of course, of course, we do have a more, a more, uh, I think, a whole, you know, collectivistic view where we help each other and where, you know, and and I don't do things by myself because we do things as a community, right? So you go to these places, they tell you, they expect you to do it alone, but then you can't. And again, you know, so facing um, like every opportunity with this thing about, okay, I don't speak the language. I don't understand any of this. This is too complicated. I don't even know where to start. Then you end up not looking for help because you, of course, is so aversive to go and try to attempt something and then be a failure, right? So um, so anyway, so I remember in this behavioral services orientation that I used to give the families, I used to tell them absolutely everything step by step. And that means you come to this building, use the GPS. This is the name of the GPS. This is how you use a GPS. And if you don't have a GPS, okay, come or go to this place. You can print for free to the library. What is your address? This is how you go from the here to there. And and then, and I do remember people telling me, well, but you know, you were playing here the role of a social worker. And I remember saying, and who cares? I am not one, I'm not licensed. I, I That's not my field, but that doesn't, I mean, I cannot ignore that. How do you tell somebody go here and go there if you have no idea how to navigate? If you don't, uh, if you don't have any idea all the layers of the system and the different agencies and parties that you have to deal with, right? So, so I do remember, you know, doing that and walking them through absolutely everything. And this is what it means. And you have to call and then say this. And, and knowing that, you know, Latino families are going to, you know, they are going to be asked, so what is the problem? They don't even know how to, for most families, they don't even know. I mean, ask us like, okay, what problem do you have with this? And certainly we're not going to be able to tell you one thing. We're going to probably start with a story and go around, especially me. 
<laughs> go around and around and around until people probably finally like help you. Okay, so this is is this the difficulty or this is the difficulty? And then you start to you know to choose from. But um, so so anyway, it's just the, this idea that you have to get out of your you have to get out of your comfort zone as a professional and play the role of whoever you need to play, like whatever you need to play in order to approach and help these families and, and tell them exactly how things are going to look like and what's going to happen since we know what the barriers are, what the process is, intake, how the problem needs to be described. And and and, and even some, you know, um, self-management of like organizational skills, you know, Okay, let's get a notebook. This is how you're gonna write. The big umbrella is called regional center. So write in the regional center, name of worker, you know, semicolon. This is the phone number. This is how you dial. This is how you do. And then after that, you know, wait. If you don't, then put in your, in your reminders, call three days, you know, follow up. Then after that, like it's breaking absolutely everything. So then we actually make it easier for them to follow up. Other, otherwise, it's like throwing you with, you know, with four bombs and you don't even know how to, you know, either escape them or approach them, you know. So so I think that's that's uh that's that's really important. And um and and also um you know getting families together, right? So creating helping them create communities. Here these are families who are living or who experience the same as you, or even talking about your own experience. Like no worries, I, I I underwent something similar in this regard, and I didn't know how to navigate this, but I was able to do this. This is what I discovered that worked in my work for you. We can also explore other options. So it's like that hand holding that you call or spoon feeding. I don't know what the term of that, but but it's it's doing that kind of thing, and 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 again creating helping them create communities. So then they get to support each other, you know, people who have already gone through the process or who are starting. And imagine how much, you know, uh, meaningful that is, you know, approaching your own struggle with your child and, you know, knowing that you have and you can build the support not only for yourself, but for you to be support for others, especially when the perspective for the lens is a collectivistic one. Ben, can I interject? Please, yeah. I know. So I, as I'm listening to, to some of these barriers that we've been talking about, something interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, that I heard with everyone sharing is these were all barriers just to even get services. No one mentioned barriers, uh, you know, in practice of mm. once we have, once we're, we're seeing families, once we're working with, with the kids, or, or teens, adults, whatever it may be, we're not even there at those barriers. This is mm -hmm. just the barriers to one, get the diagnostics of, of, of getting support, getting to the point of, okay, I, I need support, um, going through the referral process. And, you know, this is, uh, I, I'm going to use a general blanket statement, but getting services uh, for kids, you know, newly diagnosed is almost impossible. There is such a wait, long waiting list period. And, and, you know, we often say, well, you know, put your name on a waiting list. Good luck. There's so much more that needs to happen until hmm. more families get in, get their foot into the door for, for actually getting services. So all these barriers that we talked about, we haven't even talked about, well, are they implementing my recommendations properly, right? Are they attending parent training? So that's another, if we want to get into that, 
really, because that's, you know, when if from the perspective of, of clinicians delivering services, that's almost where they want the support, right? The barriers that I face when when working with families are, you know, are they coming? They're not coming to, these are common from a practitioner's side that I, that I often hear of. Well, these families aren't coming to my, my parent trainings. They're not scheduling with me. I'm not hearing from them. They're not showing up on time. Um, what do I do? So I think, I don't know if we, if that's okay, if we maybe want to go in, in that direction with that, would that be okay? <laughs> okay. So I'm going to, uh, you know, I'll set the stage and, and let others chime in and, and I'll, I'll also give my two cents about this, but often from, you know, people, others in the field, colleagues of, you know, why aren't my families coming to my parent trainings? They don't care. You know, we're doing all this work in clinic, but they're not doing anything at home. I know they're not. <laughs> I can tell. So um, I'll kind of set that set that up a little bit. Um, but again, of of barriers of, and again, I'll I'll bring that back to to the language barrier of because uh, very and very interesting that some of the work that I did prior to my dissertation was actually getting focus groups of families who had had um, had gone through services already. Either they were currently in ABA services um, or had gotten services in the past. And they talked about almost their own barriers with providers. So that was interesting, but we, but we can circle back to that later. But again, this community of, of families, of getting families together and talking about these, these issues and what to do next is, is so powerful. But let, let's, let's circle back to that later. I think one of the most important points is that as uh, as the, let's say, the director of the clinic and as the practitioner, you have to engage in some uh, perspective-taking skills. Uh, you have to recognize that uh, not all the families are under the same uh, contingencies, under the same circumstances, and you need to individualize uh, the procedures and the way that you proceed and the way that you accommodate for them. Uh, as Mariela was saying, uh, we talk about the barriers when they are like trying to get the service, but there are some other difficulties when you are like starting services for them. Uh, so if you think about, let's say, assessment, uh, Typically, the insurance companies, they offer a limited number of uh, hours for that, uh, that for that specific code. But sometimes those, those families really need more time to understand the process, the steps of that process. And just trying to avoid that conversation with the family, that time focused on explaining to them that process, the steps, the conditions and so on that affects your relationship with them and that affects your results. So we're talking about really important things here that affects uh, the outcomes of your assessment and also the, uh, the type of service that you will provide because the relationship will be affected by your, uh, by your actions. So I will say that in general, continue continuing with that, 
uh, for example, during the assessment, I will suggest to take the time to meet the family, take the time to conversate with the family, to understand what are their barriers, what are their difficulties, what are their conditions, and based on that, you adapt your, your assessment, not just running the same assessment and the same protocol with everyone, because that's what you do in your agency. You need to individualize. You need to understand the different conditions that, uh, that they are exposed, for example. I think that's a, that is a great point because I, um, I think any tool that we use for whether it's for assessment or whether it's for intake or for evaluation or, you know, any other needs to bring in um, the cultural aspect and and where the family started or how, you know, where the, what was the level of need because they are so particular. And in the same way we said, we, we, we don't assume um, and we don't put uh, families in the same bag. Uh, you know, the conditions are different. The contingencies are different. Many of the Latin uh, Latino families that we work with um, said we come already. We, you know, having studied. Uh, you know, we have degrees in other areas or in human services or in health or in education. But it's just that we don't understand how things work, how services are provided. It's not that we do not know some aspects of ASD or, you know, they, it might be other families. There might be some who struggle with, um, you know, their um, legal status, but they might, there might be huge numbers who are not and are struggling at different levels just because they don't understand the culture. They don't understand how to access services um, and they might have enough resources um, um, but under the conditions of having a child, we, we all know with the literature is very clear the, the the pressures and the stressors that parents of children with um, parents of children with autism experience are massive, and so they're not able to access a lot of their natural resources they have when they are already in a different culture. That amounts to a huge, um, you know, mountains that they feel they can't um, overcome. So it's just like what Sebastian said. You have to be so particular and so, you know, able to pinpoint where each family is coming from and where they're at um, in, in that cultural mix and the context. So, yeah, that's what I want to say. Yeah, I, I love that Patricia and Sebastian and I and Sebastian was bringing the point like about perspective taking and and just to you know um to highlight that I I always think I always remember what Skinner said at some point the rat is always right and so instead of always asking why this family is this why do they don't have this why this and that though what are you doing <laughs> or what you're not doing that the families are responding in a particular way. So that's one thing. Now, and, and on also highlighting what Patricia said, um, I think being really particular with each of the families and this, do, conducting these assessments, but also I think observation and really really stepping back from those forums and, and, and assessments, I think it's so helpful because at the end of the day, they ended up becoming rules and we know what happens with rules, right? How they uh, reduce the sensitivity to the context. So I think sometimes we might observe or ask questions and then families might tell us, no, yes, this or that, or yes, no, 
but then but that is not coherent or congruent with what you're observing and and we have to take into account that sometimes families don't they don't want to be a burden for us and so they will say yes when they're supposed to say no like you know they, they have a particular they don't have a particular need met and they will say um they will say yes but you clearly see that that's not the case um and so anyway that's just so important and and taking that time i think practitioners need to look at need to look at outside of those you know check boxes that you you know tick or i don't know is how you say it tick off that sounded so cool i always use the check mark thing anyway so um but um but really really going in there and spending the time to get the understanding the understanding not only here but the relational understanding how you're impacting the person how how can you um what can you do what else can you do to to generate the responses and the answers that you really need to generate without of course adhering to an agenda as a plan you know that against that again is going to reduce the sensitivity to context but so so and and i i guess observing the value that it has to spend this time with these families at the beginning right and not see it as a waste of time, which is commonly said, oh, that was a waste of time. I could not even get to the third, um, you know, uh, point in the questionnaire. I couldn't even do that, or I couldn't even collect data. I couldn't even do this. Well, you know, when we go with that mindset, then what are we doing really? Like, are we really showing up as a human being in there? Or are we just being a pure technician who goes in there to check off the tick boxes or the thing, you know, the squares. So um, so I just think it's, it's really important to observe that and to, to, to let themselves, like practitioners, be in contact with the value of spending time to listen and to observe the impact, to, to be checking on that, you know, relational aspect. And, and again, what are you not doing enough of or or a little you know just a little bit of that is not created certain conditions or certain responses you know on part of the families there is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis human expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The third secret word is boot camp. I love that. So many, so many notes I just took here. Um, you know, I think you're right, uh, Mariella, of course, that there are... Uh, 
a load of barriers once they get into services. But I, then I also think, and Louise's point that, you know, there are so many barriers before they get to services and you have to be thinking about both. I, I, I love when I have, um, I, more and more, I feel like social work, a master of social work should be the required degree for behavior analysts. Um, if, every time I interview a social worker that has a BCBA, um, they always talk about how they kind of address their cases in, in, in much in the same way, you know, you folks are describing and to have those skills. And, and uh, I think we often, at, at least in sort of my neck of the woods, we often forget the social workers are also ridiculously overworked and, and often have, you know, we complain about caseloads of 30 and they have caseloads of, of you know, 2000 sometimes or whatever. And, you know, they don't really have the time to do, they don't have, social workers don't have time to be social workers um, um, the, way, the way, you know, the way they should be. And so I think in, in a lot of ways that that is our role is to sort of take on, you know, some of these social work tasks. And I definitely think pointing someone in the right direction doesn't sort of go out of our competence, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's things we can do that, that, uh, that, you know, that those folks do to, to, to really, to really kind of help out and really kind of build. And, and you really talk about, and this all kind of feeds back into kind of relationship building, which again, behavior analysts are not trained on how to build relationships. We're trained on pairing, um, but that's not really building relationships. That's, um, you know, that's something different. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I, th I think that that's that's really key. And I know, Louisa, you uh, you had one, one of the articles that was kind of referenced uh, was was some of the work um, you were doing on um, on 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 teaching folks how to how to build relationships as practitioners, um, and and that there were sort of some some I, I won't get into sort of the whole you know, clicker training aspect of that article, but. Uh, I, I was curious if you might be able to just touch a bit on sort of um, a few of those skills that you know behavior analysts kind of need to 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 go in and 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 be you know and and build relationships uh, and and be compassionate with folks. Uh, sure, um, I'm gonna try. Let me just prepare myself to be succinct here. <laughs> but um, so. Just, just one thing before that, okay? I promise it's gonna be Please, short. yeah, yeah. So this, this study um, originated when I was running consult groups for behavior analysts wanting to learn ACT. Mm. And, and I had ready, you know, all the protocols um, and, and I thought, okay, well, this is what I'm gonna do. And when I started, um like collecting baseline, I realized I can't I can't teach them how to do act before they learn other stuff. And and in my you know work with Evie and and we always go on rants about how you know like the the, the important pieces that are so basic and probably people don't talk much about it. Well right now in the field it has become more prevalent which is great. But, but we're always saying like why why these things are absent why people are not why people are treating other people like I don't know like machines like I don't know what the definition of client is but you know but how the, there are it's almost like the conversation is the you know the family saying oh no I had a really crappy day it was horrible okay yes I hear you so okay so when was the last time your child threw a tantrum 
and and the family is crying or is completely out of the you know the zone and and they continue asking questions and so anyway so i thought we must teach them other skills before we even go into something much much more complex so we decided um to teach listening skills and yes that sounds like so basic right like everybody listens but are you are you really listening right is the information really getting to you? Do you really have a couple of seconds to know how that information is impacting you and how you're responding to the person? Not much, right? Because everything happens so fast. So we decided to, to target that. To target, I can't remember at the moment how is that we call them. We were trying to call them something that was, or that sounded something familiar. And we try to define them in terms of like Skinner's verbal operands. Um, so, but it was it was that it was uh, you know validation and asking questions with really curiosity, not just the questions for the sake of asking. But when you ask a question with curiosity, you really go out of the box and you want to know from beginning to end, from right to left, and vice versa. Um, and and that changes the quality of how you actually ask questions, and actually again the kinds of questions that you're asking, right? That again go much more, like much more beyond or like farther than the check thing, you know, the tick boxes. Um, now I am gonna obsess over that word, the tick box. <laughs> okay, so so yeah, so those were so asking questions with curiosity, um, and 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 then yeah, listening, um listening and i think the other one was uh um yeah vali validation um and well of course that you know it's going to require that perspective taking and really having taking those couple of seconds for you to know how that information is landing on you right and and responding according to that while watching your own your own grocery bag you know over here <laughs> So um yeah, so those those were the ones and and we use clicker, you know. Um many people still think, oh, the clicker, the clicker training, and it's not like I forget about the clicker. It's the importance about this article is the skills and the importance of teaching these skills. And and it goes beyond just saying a script. I am so sorry, that must be hard. No, like don't do not say that if you don't feel it. Like, you know, you have to just be attuned to uh to the person to what the person is conveying to you and that makes a huge difference so of course there's a the importance of a functional analysis over a topographical one when teaching this type of skills and um and then what else i was going to say um something and it's kind of flying away but uh let me see okay so the clicker thing so the clicker the cl the clicker was to actually not interrupt the person because I did find myself so many times having this one hour or two hour consultations and then doing real plays or role plays and then having to say like let's interrupt okay what's happening in that moment do you remember what you just said how do you think this is impacting the person okay well this happens because of this and this and that and then we will go on and on and on and and we will not advance so we decided we decided, okay, what are we gonna do? Maybe we just take like a color of, you know, 
piece of paper or something. And then we said, no, let's use the technology, you know, derived from our own, you know, science. And then we thought, okay, clicker. So that way feedback was delivered without interruptions. Feedback was going to be given later on those because it was recorded and whatnot, but it was about not um, like allowing, you know, that, you know, fluency there and the, the you know, the stream of the interaction. Um, and yeah, so, so that's it. I think I just leave it at that. <laughs> No, I love that. I thought the clicker thing was genius because I think you're right. It, 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 uh, you know, when you're trying to teach these skills, you know, if, if you keep verbally reinforcing in between sentences, you know, then then folks are going to learn to sort of pause in between sentences, and and you're going to have sort of a, you know sort of a some 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 faulty faulty things kind of happening there. So I think I think that was that was. That was awesome. I also love about this article. We're going to share them on the show notes. Is is that they have, you know, uh, it just has a nice sort of a table that sort of defines what the, the skills are, gives the examples and non-examples, and and shows kind of how to go through them. I, I mean, maybe I could use the clicker training as well, but I, I think just having that little table in front of me when I'm talking to folks, it had just had me reflecting on a conversation I had with a supervisee uh last week who who was going through a lot a, a, a lot of sort of personal struggles um um and uh and uh and I was just uh-huh you know that was how I was responding uh-huh so anyway um what 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 are we working on today you know sorry to hear about that what are we working on today when um you know, I, I really think I, I I needed to be asking asking some questions. I really needed to be validating, you know, what what they had to say. And I thought I thought you know lessons learned. Um, uh, so I think that it, it's a really helpful helpful tool. You know, I also something else that uh, some of the language you meant, like Mariela, you were talking about how kind of you know we call these things barriers, but it, you know it's really sort of our system that's kind of um, uh, that's the barrier, you know, we call them barriers and suddenly somehow that imposes the problem onto those folks. Patricia, you said, you know, they often have these, you know, ruminating thoughts that they're the problem. Um, uh, Louisa, you talked about terms like hand holding and spoon feeding, which I think is really reflective of the individualistic kind of society that uh, Westerners live in versus the kind of collective society. I mean, we call it hand holding and spoon feeding. Uh, you know, you call it, you know, just helping family. You know, um, and uh, and that's just a, you know, hand holding and spoon feeding implies that they're babies, that 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 these are skills that they should have already. Um, uh, and so, I think we have a lot of terms in in sort of our language that kind of really uh, dig into sort of collectivism and 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 don't don't sort of support that. In, you know, in our in our in our area. Um, so, you know, I, I, I definitely like like looking at it as sort of the problem isn't, you know, these folks, the problem is kind of kind of how we're doing it. You mentioned earlier a bit, you know, you know, when they when they they're, they're newly diagnosed and they arrive and we're and, and, and now we're looking to provide services. I was just had a couple of questions around diagnosis as a barrier. Um because uh, I, I've talked a lot about diagnosis in terms of you know, uh, on the podcast in terms of black folks and kind of, you know, how you know, a lot of systemic racism and, and whatnot plays a role in folks not being able to access services, you know, uh, the sort of natural distrust of sort of the black community of sort of American systems also makes it difficult for, you know, accessing those things. 
uh, we were talking about sort of how in, uh, in in Canada in particular, you know, diagnosis for Indigenous folks is 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 very is affected by a lot of racism. So a lot of Indigenous folks, instead of getting autism diagnosis, get fetal alcohol spectrum disorder diagnosis and diagnosis instead, because of the assumption that all all mothers from Indigenous backgrounds are alcoholics and therefore um, that must it must be FASD. Um, and, uh, and and that sort of accounting for all these symptoms. And of course, an FASD diagnosis results in no services. Uh, and an autism diagnosis results in all the services. Um, and so we have a lot of Indigenous kids with autism in Canada that aren't receiving services because they're paid, they're, they're, you know, framed in this way. I'm curious, are there are there similar kinds of sort of uh, barriers to diagnosis beyond sort of you know the obvious um, sort of being in a rural area or or or, um, or financial barrier? Although that is definitely going to be a you know a part of systemic racism as well that financial barrier. But are there are there other kinds of barriers to diagnosis for Latino folks? I think for me, the first one that comes up is just awareness of mm -hmm. what ASD is. Um, I mean, I've been in this field for, I don't know, close to 10 years. And it sometimes I'll, you know, have conversations with my mom and she'll be like, oh, well, this person doesn't look like they have autism. So, you know, like that kind of gives me a sense of, right, maybe where, um, you know, she was born outside the states of, you know, the knowledge of what ASD is, or um, it might be common of, well, they're just, you know, to use an ableist term, they're just crazy, you know, um, and to just essentially isolate them and, you know, shun the person. Um, so I think just, I think knowledge is one of maybe the biggest barriers when it comes to diagnosis. Um, if people aren't, families aren't aware that ASD is, you know, a thing, then they probably won't seek out services or know where to go to, um, what to say, right, things like that. And, and just something to add to what Natalia was saying is that, at least in my experience working with uh, Latino families, um, there is like, um, there isn't for mothers, there isn't an expectation that one child is going to be exactly the same as the next one and the next one and the next one. So they might show uh, a lot of, um, you know, variability in terms of, um, you know, reaching milestones at a particular age or being more difficult and more, um, more, how is that they, how is that we say, like, I don't know, I'm not going to say it in Spanish, but like more, um, like strong temperament and more, you know, willful and, you know, and and so they are not in the lookout for the diagnosis and for the disease and the syndrome. They are more, okay, well, that's how just he is in the moment and is he's going to get over it. So that is definitely one barrier, which I think is lovely, that view of not expecting your child to be like a mold and the next and the next child to be a month, you know, from the previous one, but just very like accepting of of this variability, right? And that yeah, they're gonna be different, of course, and and have they're gonna have different tastes and different you know favorite things, and and again reaching milestones at different stages. But to to an extent that 
sometimes children don't speak and they are eight and oh no he'll 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 talk i'm sure you know my cousin he started talking at 14 years old and that's fine so so i think that's that's although i think it's lovely right because of not accounting or, or not expecting this mold thing um it is problematic because they do not seek out for help at the right timing, right? Um, and they just hope that it's gonna is part of themselves and it's gonna be they're gonna get over it or it's gonna pass, you know. It's gonna it's like a little storm and it's gonna pass. Yeah, just wanted to add on that as well that um, sometimes they um, they don't pick up the early signs. They might not pick up those those differences or, uh, because there are so many other issues and variables and contingencies that they need to pay attention to and things to cope with. That you know often you know when you have basic needs to to actually you know get covered. Um, Parenting is it, it's it's hard gets gets harder to to actually pinpoint these these things are and uh, you just hope for the best and you might think that you know the child might not be achieving in nursery or in the childcare but you have so many other things on your plate that you know just you hope that it's it's gonna get better just you know next month or the following month and it doesn't and I think also culturally it might be that. Um, I, 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 in my experience, some of the parents haven't actually looked at um, uh, services or exploring the diagnosis because they feel responsible in many ways. I think in the Latino or the Latin American um, families, um, parents feel that is their responsibility to get the children to behave, and so they they might feel that you know if they pay, if the children are are challenging in any way is their fault because they are not controlling their children. And in many public environments, they would expect, you know, parents to, you know, use any method, you know, get your children to behave. So um, that might be something that they put on their shoulders as well, and they don't seek professionals um, support or diagnosis. So I love the the cultural, I think you started bringing that up, Patricia, of the cultural shift of that, because uh, so I have two two different comments of, of what you mentioned. So the first one, the cultural uh, thing of, and I hear a lot of families, even from like my own family saying, oh, like, and I'll get this from time to time of why are there so many kids with with autism now? Like that wasn't a thing back home. Like that's that's not a thing back home. So I think, uh, cause we still have a lot of family in, in Central America and they're like, that's, that's, you know why doesn't autism exist back there? And it's often, well, you know people aren't getting the diagnoses. There's, there's still individuals that need support but families aren't getting that, that support, right? We're not, we're, we're seeing the, the prevalence numbers shift a little bit differently. So often it's like, well, people are just are saying that they, they have this because of the going back to the behavioral, right? They're just not educating their kids properly. So it's a lot of, it's almost that stigma, a little bit of, of culture that still exists. Um, but I think it's also, it, it shifts a little bit into that cultural, but also into those personal family values, I think, of how family can play such an important role. And, you know, when you're sharing with family of, you know, my child isn't doing this or they should be doing that, there's sometimes that family support isn't isn't always there. And sometimes when you go from this 
this collective family view of, you know, we do this as a whole family, you know, everyone's included in this, these important decision makings, right? So going, taking that next step of, do I take my child for for a second opinion or to the doctor? You know, first I'm going to, I'm going to ask my mom or my grandma first of, of what she thinks. And that's almost like their first you know, has anyone else done this? Has anyone else in, in my close family knit done this? So it may be a little different or weird of, oh, you're going to the doctor. No, you don't, you don't need to go to a doctor to, to do this. It's fine. We'll drink, drink something, you know, we'll maybe bring other, other needs, right? Pray about it. It's going to go away or, you know, it'll, it'll be fine. So I think just that cultural focus can play such a, such a role and the values that a family has or what they you know, what's, what is important to them. Check out episode 103 for the conclusion of this conversation.
Yeah, I mean, I, I see how, uh, um, you know, and again, it's, you know, it goes back to this sort of, you know, systemic barrier in position that we we put on it. Like, I, I could totally see, I mean, everything you say about that collective family piece and, you know, I, I could totally see how that could be really, you know, valuable and 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 augment services. You know, I mean, I it, it it's often so difficult. I mean, in in sort of our kind of individualistic society, to just to work with one family member, um, it's often we often work deal with often the mother. You know, um, when that's that's sort of all all we have, and and uh, you know, and when we try to sort of, are there any other supports in the family that can help? No, no, everyone's busy. You know, this <laughs> is often is often the case where you know, whereas in you know in in, in these in, in these kind of cultural communities, you know the the family, the family is is the mother. It, it's everybody is, is is sort of together on this. But we we might sort of avoid. We might say that's a problem. Well, we have to deal with everybody. We have to work with everybody. You know, and and so it's really about sort of changing kind of uh, the way we're approaching things. Uh, bless you. It's coming. <laughs> everyone's watching as the the muted sneeze is formed um <laughs> um so yeah so i i, I really like um you know uh, looking at things kind of kind of kind of from 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 that angle um i was wondering i do want to get into sort of you know uh, the article at some point here but i had a couple more questions uh around some of the other barriers that you folk that folks were talking about because early on um Luisa and uh Mariella talked about sort of how um and, and everyone else I think to another to another degree uh their the work of their the focus of their work has been working with the, the Latino population and the and Latino communities in particular um, um and, and really kind of enjoying that work and and I, and I I think generally speaking folks from the interviews I've done sort of around the world Folks would prefer to have services from someone from their own culture, from their own, that speaks their own language. You know, I think generally speaking, folks aren't looking to to practice English um, and uh, or whatever and and have that opportunity. You know, they they would rather be able to to do that. And so, you know, but but what, what I also have learned from a lot of the interviews I've done is that there aren't enough practitioners to sort of meet that need. You know, there aren't enough. You know, either, and it's not even Spanish speaking because I, I mean, I know, uh, interesting, uh, Natalia, your article that we kind of touched on when, when we, when in, in our, in our first interview, you know, around even speaking the same language, um, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be on the same page, um, um, uh, because there's sort of all these other, other sorts of pieces and that, you know, the, the non-vocal verbal behavior and some of those other sort of grammar and semantics and all that can, can, can really change communication. So just because I'm from Spain and speak Spanish doesn't mean I'm going to do well working with um, someone who's um, yeah, not. Um, um, and But I was wondering about sort of, um, I've had a lot of conversations around the work that's being done to increase increase uh, the numbers of Black professionals in behavior analysis. And, you know, we've seen lovely organizations like BABA who are doing amazing work and, and uh, you know, and even and, and the, the announcement they made at their last conference about a, about a, a behavior analysis program being at, uh, finally starting at one of the, the HBCUs um, down in Florida, which is, you know, going to be, a, a, I think, a big, a big help in getting more Black behavior analysts in, into the field. Uh, 
And I, I know, and, and about having sort of that representative. So I, I think black representation in the U.S. population is something like fourteen or fifteen percent. Uh, but there's, but the percentage of behavior analysts that are black are is is, is hovering around four percent. You know, so you have kind of that that difference. And then, I, and I've seen some numbers from some of your papers that I think the percentage of of Latino folks in the U.S. is is much higher, like twenty plus percent. Um, uh, I'm curious. Number one, you know, if 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 you folks know where the numbers are for Latino behavior analysts, um, um, and then kind of what's being done or what can be done to sort of increase those numbers. I don't know about the numbers per se. Um, I think we might be in terms of which um, I learned this term from Dr. Marlisha Bell of we're not the we're the global majority mm -hmm. IPOC, all right, uh, individuals that I think in terms of the numbers with like the with the BACB, I think Latinos, Hispanic Latinos are the largest you know global majority um, population. I don't know how to frame that, but um, minority, however we want to say that. Um, and, and I think we see this across, um, you know, like non-white populations that we, there's a lot of, there's a higher number of, um, right, like BIPOC individuals at like the RBP level, right? And then that number decreases as we go up the certification chain, so to speak. Um, but that's kind of the extent that I know about that. Um, and you asked, oh, you also asked like how we can get maybe more, right? Like Latinos in behavior analysis. Um, I don't know, I think, and I've had this conversation with different people of maybe even just starting at the high school level of exposing high schoolers to what behavior analysis is, what our science is, um, you know, what we could do with our science and getting people there interested in what we do. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think having people who look like you makes a big difference. Like, I think if I had someone, if I came across someone in my grad program that looked like me, I think that would, that would motivate me even more, like bring up some, you know, spark some curiosity in me to you know, like, okay, what's, what's this about? Um, and that, you know, um, also kind of spills over to mentorship, right? Things like that. Um yeah, I don't know. And I mean, but there's also conversations of, well, sometimes people don't want to go maybe all the way to become a BCBA, right? They want to stay at the RBT level, which is completely fine, um, right? Like not assuming or forcing people to keep going if that's not what they want to do. Um, but I think as long as there are systems of support in place, I think that that's ultimately what matters and will help people thrive and stay right in the field. I think in addition to that, uh, I have to say that uh, more efforts can be made to promote uh, international students uh, from Latin America in graduate programs in the US. So if you want to uh, increase the number of um, international uh, perspectives in your program, there are significant efforts that can be made uh, in general in grad school. 
for example, something that uh, it was uh, discussed a little bit a couple of months ago in the list SERP for teaching behavior analysis. Uh, one of the things that schools can uh, start uh, is to register behavior analysis as uh, one of the programs in the STEAM fields. Uh, that's uh, something uh, minor, but that has a lot of implications for international students. So just checking with the International Center of your university and check if your behavior analysis program is registered as one of the science fields. And they will tell you what is the paperwork to fill out and that will significantly uh, affect your international students. Uh, so things like that can be made to promote engagement uh, of Hispanics, Latinos, and even from our regions, uh, and increase diversity in the field. I, I love that, Sebastian. And, and just wanted to really touch on what we spoke before, that even if we were to encourage, you know, um, Latin American, you know, students to come to graduate programs, then a change at the systemic level, like more specifically the schools and the graduate schools need or would need to stop the nonsense about making all these nonsense requirements that feel unachievable. Um, Again, it's like the step-by-step -step thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess for grad school, the checkoff list is much more specific. And yet, when you read that, you're like, I will never go. I will never go to the United States and study. This is impossible. I can't do that. Because it seems way too, way too much. Now, I do understand. I am not saying now probably people are going to be like, what are you saying about grad, like grad schools? But in reality is there are requirements that, yeah, they need to be in place, but there are also a bunch of other things that it's almost like they increase. It's almost like, think of a ladder, right? A ladder. So think of the people who have the language, who have, you know, or who have come here for other experiences, whether they're tourists or whatever else, but think about coming here or, or, or being in your country and then, trying to, you know, to get to all these levels of the ladder. They don't have even the, the basics over there or even an understanding of what that's going to imply in terms of um, like even immigration, visas, all these kinds of things. That is like even probably the first aspect and that is so difficult, uh, especially at least in Colombia, it was difficult back in the day. I, I was denied the visa to come to study like a million times and my husband too. And until we finally were able to, and um, and anyway, so that's one thing. But it's like when there's no the right supports and the requirements from the grad school are applicable, perfectly applicable to, you know, to predominant culture. Then how people from other countries can can climb the same ladder with the same ease, right? So I, I don't know if I am making myself clear, but. It's there needs to be other other adjustments or policies in place requirements that instead of making 
you know, the entrance of these, you know, Latin American people here are impossible. They should make it more accessible. And and yes, and so that is why I was talking about sometimes the nonsense about requirements that are are beyond. And also that when you read that, you just think, I don't even know how to get that. And what if it doesn't work? Then, then what are my options, right? And like it's again the description and the step by step. This is this is the support, how we can make it accessible and actually compelling, you know, like or enticing for people to come. Um yeah, so no, yeah, I think that uh I think yeah, hundred percent. There's so many barriers just to even get, you know, into a university, let alone let alone, you know, start a program. I had, uh, I remember I had uh, Kaylin Partlow on a while back and she's an RBT and down in kind of Georgia or somewhere and she's autistic. Um, and she's also um, got a bunch of learning disabilities, dyscalculia in particular, which is that kind of math related one. And I asked her, you know, are you ever going to become a BCBA? And she said, I'd love to, but that's never going to happen. And and I said, well, well, why not? Because the only way that I can get into a university to take the program is if I do these ridiculous prerequisites, which includes this advanced math course that I'd have to take. And, um, you know, what's advanced math got to do with behavior analysis besides maybe if you're going to be a researcher and do stats, but even then you usually bring on the, the stats guy from the department to kind of, kind of do a lot of that for you anyway. Uh, and so she, she was essentially prevented from entering university, not because of grades, not because of inability to do work, but because she couldn't do advanced math to get into a behavior analysis program. And I would imagine there's a lot of, you know, these silly requirements that um, have been in place for so long that prevent lots of people from getting into university that would be totally capable and you think university they want your they want your tuition so um, you think they'd be more open to kind of having you in there for that reason if not for sort of those cultural reasons all right let, 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 I know we've been having a really good conversation about a lot of the different barriers and some of the things we can do but let's just talk a little bit about the article and kind of one thing that that, that you folks kind of came up with um and in particular, I noticed I know a couple of you were talking about uh, you know, Latino and, and, and family values and collectivist values being really important. And again, going back to your comment near the beginning, Patricia, about how it's often their own thoughts um, that that they're the problem and they're having the problem. And so I can see how, um, uh, uh, you know, especially with uh, so many of you going to UNR as well. Uh, I could see how uh, uh, you know ACT seemed to make a lot of sense as as something to that that might be uh, uh, applicable here. So uh, maybe I just outlined it, but um, uh, what was the reason um, you, folks thought that this might be a good way of of, of providing services to families? Well, can I just start? I think there are many, many aspects, many mm, points there. But, sure. but I think we've spoken uh, and throughout the conversation about uh, a compassionate view and the accepting part. So I think um, 
that's that's would be the basic for practitioners to to gather really uh, an understanding of where families are coming from and um accept and you know further more than empathy it, we need a compassionate view of the situations and deeper understanding where they're they're coming from, what it means to have a child uh, without a diagnosis that they're struggling with, that they don't know much in a in a in a in a in a culture that is unknown to them, um, with all the stressors that that we know. So um, I think that is uh, an essential part um, to have that um, that softener view. That even though we are going in with the with the best science and with the um, best approach and the effective um, tools that we that we have the empathy the compassion to to adjust uh, to make the adjustments necessary for us to you know for the practitioners to understand really what it is to be in that situation and respond to the various needs that they that they will um, face. Um, I think you know what we're talking about is the, the the diagnosis point, and you did say from you know it's it's good to to see that the families um, you know bring their own ideas about what ASD is and the child and what the struggles are. But even those families who seek the diagnosis and who finally uh, come to 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 the point where they're desperate and asking for help, they are very many you know very often um, faced uh, uh, with professionals that are, that who are um, rushing through the process that are expecting um, families to behave in certain ways and don't allow them to t the time to tell their story to to you know to because they don't have the tools to say what they're facing, you know, what the behaviors are. And often Latino families would tell you, uh, you know, they tell you through a story. <laughs> they don't tell you where my child uh, kicks, throws, where they don't tell us about the, 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 the pure topographies. They would tell us what happens when they go to bed and what happens when they are going to the loo. Uh, you know, and that takes longer than actually describe, you know, just say the topography. So practitioners and, and clinicians get get quite anxious and and uh, frustrated by our families just telling all these stories. So I think acceptance, understanding, compassion is a main main aspect here. And and I think that going back, I, I think I am always going to touch on the same things because I can help it. <laughs> but um but if we if from an act perspective and 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 more philosophically speaking from an interbehavioral perspective we want to understand the behavior of the person in front of us in context right in interrelation with their biology their culture their history their you know absolutely everything but also yours as a practitioner i think that although it's mentioned repeatedly and, and brought up in papers on discussions, et cetera, et cetera. There is, I don't know what the barrier is. I just guess that it is really kind of like an avoidance move, you know, when you see that something aversive is coming, but the work you have to do on your own, your own personal work needs to be there. And there is not enough, not enough emphasis on that. People are crazy about ACT and I want to do ACT and I want to be an ACT therapist, but do you do ACT yourself? Do you go to therapy yourself? Do you do the work yourself? And it's not happening. So it becomes like a, 
like plugging in, you know, things here and there in outlets where they see it. Um, so there is a disruption, there is a disconnect. There is a disconnect. And and when when the practitioners, when practitioners don't do their own work or they don't know what it looks like or what it feels like to do this work, how in the world are, are they going to make it work for the family when they are so far away from that, you know, from that experience? So I, again, you are part of the context of the person you are working with. So you can't deny or erase or put in the second burner of the stove yourself. Because whatever you do and say and how you use language is going to generate an impact on the person. But it's also it's giving you the data that you need to do something different, you know. Um, so, yeah, just to close it here, that emphasis on the practitioner as context. Um, and without it, there's nothing. I mean, not to be pessimistic or to be annulative, but there's nothing. I just don't. I just don't see it. Like it's like um, like having a I don't know, like throwing a spaghetti at the, at the wall and hoping that some of the spaghetti sticks to the wall. And it's like a guessing game, and and it's only yeah, the spaghetti at the wall. But you don't even know how you're moving your hand, or you're not feeling the spaghetti. And is it like sticky enough to stick to the wall? So that work needs to happen. Practitioners need to, to do that. So this is not for the families. This is not to make families do whatever they want to do. This is not, I'm going to do act because families, they are non-compliant. Or they are doing, it's not, it's not that. It's letting go of those agendas. But to let them go, you have to be aware of those. And to be aware of those, you have to do work on yourself. And the self-awareness in practitioners, I see really scars, honestly. And so anyway, that's it. I, I That's it. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree that uh, in, my, in my view for an organization that is receiving uh, clients from a different culture, uh, some value clarification within the uh, therapy teams is encouraged. So... If you engage in value clarification for each of the members of the team, uh, will help to approach that family in a different way. So, uh, what are your values as a therapist? What are your values as a BCBA? Uh, and based on that, you can modify your relationship with that family because you are not seeing just the Topography of, oh, just the family just talking a lot of uh, problems with the car. But then you notice that talking about the problems with the car has a function and you're the context in which that behavior is appearing. And uh, you are the one that in some way represents the healthcare system. Uh, something that we have to take into account is that some Latino families face a lot of barriers within the healthcare system, not ABA only, but in general. Uh, and then you go to their houses and you represent the healthcare system. There's a equivalence uh, relationship over there. Uh, you're the face of the healthcare system. 
And that's why they are expecting a little bit more from you. And if you engage in that value clarification, uh, you can work and engage in those committed actions towards those values. And that will change the way that you uh, interact with that family and with that client. So it's not just how can we help that family, it's just it's also a matter of uh, growth within the organization, within the team, uh, and for each individual providing that service. And like touching on the point of values, just as you know, the other you know aspects or like repertoires, skills, however you want to call them, in ACT, it is again listening with curiosity right it's not okay so what are your values the first time i was asked that question i was like what do you mean like okay well not killing people and like you know loving the world and like not stealing right so like like it's really getting into like how do you ask again the questions and because i'm sure that if you have been asked the question probably you have also been confused you don't know what to answer and so the skill of reading for clients. And, and it is actually observing when the family is talking about something that they care about. It is all of them, all their stream of behavior, not just the content of what they say, but it is it's everything, is their posture and their tone of voice and absolutely all the stream of behavior, right? on their part. We know when it is constricted or restricted. We know when it's under aversive control, even if they're talking about something they care about versus when they open up and they smile and their eyes shine or something. Even if they're talking about something that doesn't look like or topographic like values or what you are expecting the parent to say, but that is is reading those. So again, I mean, ACT is, is wonderful and 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 there's some, you know, a bunch of papers, you know, supporting um, the use of ACT with families, with, with, with parents. But it is, again, uh, you know, the role of the therapist to, you know, to, to take on, this is not something I do to them, but I do with them and that involves you. And, and again, really like observing, staying there. I don't know how else to say it, embodying it. Um, so you can actually do the work, not just give them a questionnaire to fill or, or questions about like that. Like, what are your values as a family? Like, oh, what do you mean, right? But it is, it is that. It is setting opportunities to observe their dynamics. And, and so then you really get to see what's important to them. And, and don't expect that it's gonna be on the surface. You have to dig. And as you dig, you continue to observe and then really find out what, what you know, what the important thing is in there. Um, Something that I have found to, to be really helpful in, in my work with, with ACT and working with families, that it's almost like the ACT piece, because again, as many, mostly a lot of everyone on this, this panel has talked about, you know, the flexibility it offers and checking in on, on our own values and the work that we have to do of, of the context that we're delivering. So taking that into perspective, something that I, I really enjoyed working with this is, is utilizing 
you know, almost like an act model with families separate from that. And that's, they're not separate, but almost like a one-on-one with families. And that almost allows almost like built in those relationships, right? Because we talked about earlier on of, you know, having that, that sympathy with families. We talked about active listening, right? And again, those pieces, it, it provides almost like that good model of, of the, all those pieces working together, right? We're not just going to go in and, okay, what, what are your values, right? There's, there's that buildup of getting families comfortable because that can be really hard to do with families if there's absolutely no rapport. It's especially with, uh, I mean, with, with any family, but take into consideration Latino families. They're like, what, what are you doing on me? Are you doing therapy on me? Right. This isn't what I signed up for. So building that rapport can be so important and not, and, and how we frame things in the delivery with families too. So something recently that, that we did with families is, is working on mindfulness, right. Being present, uh, families, you know, if you, if you act, if, you know, I'll always, I'll start off with asking how families, right? Have you heard of, of being present, present moment awareness? We have apps, uh, some families have no idea what that is. Um, but then when you bring it into to context and, and what I've done with families in the past is talking about, you know, bringing it into something that they may be familiar. And again, going back to how we have to look at, at every family, so, so unique. And at this point I had built up a relationship with that family that I knew this family was active in their church community that they prayed. Um, so kind of bringing in those, those cultural pieces, things that were important to them and kind of weaving them in and adapting it to meeting those needs. So again, this bringing in act, I think allows that opportunity of, we talked about of identifying those values, but how we're going to ask families to get to those values, right? Lining up a plan of, okay, those these are your values, but what are what are your committed actions, right? How are we going to check in on how we're going to get you closer to to getting closer to those values? So I think it's it it lays out a really good flexible opportunity as practitioners to utilize with families, um, and I think that's that's why we feel that it's been so effective with with several of the families that that we're able to work with. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. And I think this is where kind of, you know, and I'm not, I mean, no, by no means even remotely close to any proficiency in ACT. Actually, none at all. Um, and, uh, but it, it, where ACT really differs from, I think, all of the other kind of technologies that ABA has to offer people is is that it seems to be the one where from everything you've been saying, where you have to kind of do it, you have to kind of do it on yourself. Um, um, and uh, and I hear I hear a lot about this in terms of just folks wanting to get into ACT, and people say, "I want to get into ACT. I want to get some mentorship, or build my competency." And the advice I always hear is, "Well, you know, have you been to a boot camp, or or or, or have you bought that happiness book, or whatever, you know?" Um, to, <laughs> Louisa, respond. Are you sure that you want me to respond to that? I do, yes. Oh my God. Well, yes, that's what normally, that's kind of like the course of action. That's what we see happening in the field, right? Going to an upboot camp and people 
experiencing some sense of what art means or might mean or might feel right and and because at boot camps it like often you encounter or or you are i guess confronted with uh i guess your own experiences that you have not explored before and then it's almost like it's, it's almost like drinking the kool-aid right or like the tampico i don't know tampico will be in spanish <laughs> So when they drink the Tampico, then you're like on a high, right? And then you go there and they, you say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Tomorrow I'm going to do these exercises. And tomorrow, you know, and and so I, I what I see is that people tend to think that going to a boot camp or reading Russ Harris' book, The Happiness Trap, or The Reality Slap, or, you know, any other book, and and they just have it all, right? They have it all. And it's almost like they close themselves to, you know, to whatever, you know, the experience was in the bootcamp plus um, plus the books. And then they go and do it. And they, again, forget about what are they doing? Like, are like what is the agenda there? The agenda is I'm going to use this on somebody, right? This has to work. But how insensitive can that, can that be? Because the fact that some exercises help you um, to contact either you know, like um, appetitive stimuli or not, you can't expect that that is going to work or click as it clicked for you, you know, to do the same with families or with anyone that you work with. So um, I just say that that has to be uh, an ongoing training, an an ongoing work on yourself. One book will never do it. One bootcamp, which yes, is is practice, practice, but it's almost like really go to a bootcamp, like a true bootcamp, like in the fitness world. Are you gonna develop your muscles and be super strong after five days? Of course not. But at least now your hands were touching the bars and lifting, and you know how hard that is. And now you probably know, but you hate. Oof. Okay, leg day is the worst. Or like you know, you, you will know, you will know what your aversives and appetitives are. But that's just the beginning. That is just the beginning. And a book, of course, a book will never do it because you really have to, you really have to be in contact with the with the work on an ongoing basis in order to learn. And also to expect that you're gonna make a million mistakes. And that is okay. But look for supervision, look for mentorship, continue training. This is not a one-shot deal or one bootcamp deal or one book deal. It's not it's not gonna end there. Um so yes, I, I don't know if I answered the question, but yeah, let's leave it at that. <laughs> well I didn't ask a question, uh, but um uh, I was more talking about you were you you definitely answered the question I was probably gonna ask um uh in terms of sort of Kind of, kind of how act it differs from sort of other other ABA sort of technologies, you know, say like a DRA or or whatever. Um, um, in in that you know, it's it's really those things are are things that are in a lot of ways done to a person. 
um, um, and you don't do it to yourself. You're not in, you're not uh, you're not teaching yourself some functional communication while you teach them, right? Or or whatever. Um, uh, maybe we should be. Uh, you know, maybe maybe this is something we need to learn from ACT. Um, but ACT is, is 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 as you say, Louise, and as I've heard before, it's it's a it's a constant um, um, self awareness practice in a lot of ways. I, I, I interviewed a, a few folks about the ACT matrix a while back, um, and uh, and one particular clinician who uses who has a lot of success using the ACT matrix. So. Um, um, to build sort of teams in, in kind of group home settings. But she says, she said that every single time before that, the meeting that she, she I mean, she does a matrix every time she meets with a family um, or with a, with a group home te staff team, but she also does one on herself every time before she meets with that team um, and also, and does them on herself on a regular basis um, in order to sort of, you know, um, you know, do everything kind of you're implying. And, I think that that's hard for folks to wrap their minds around in this field, that they've got to sort of apply the technology to themselves. Um, um, and I think that's and, kind of what, yeah. And sorry, Ben, and sorry, because I answered another question, yeah. you know, uh, but anyway, and now I'm going to answer the right one. Okay. <laughs> so I don't think at, at this stage, like right now, if you had asked me that question before, I, would have answered differently. Mm. But what I can say is that ACT is not any different from behavior analysis. Mm. And just as, just as like when I say that we have to be doing the work and, and when you say, well, when, for instance, when we teach language and we, or when, you know, we do or implement DRA, DRO, um, but we wouldn't do it on ourselves. But in fact, we are subjected to those contingencies of enforcement differentially mm. or not, right? Mm -hmm. But if we were aware on a daily basis, what if we were aware of what contingencies are playing here? What if, you know, what, what if we could pinpoint instances where, you know, DRA or DRI or DRL, you know, has happened or any other principles, you name it, right? Same thing. If we brought awareness to that, trust me, we can point to absolutely every single principle of behavior analysis here in this conversation. And right. I don't see that. Being I don't see ACT being different from behavior analysis and the principles of behavior analysis. So, um, yes, so it's not different. It, it is the same. And there are, there are papers and there are efforts in trying to translate these middle level terms, you know, that are depicted in the, in the hexaflex, uh, the model of psychological flexibility. So there have been efforts to put those in terms of, um, the principles, right? Something that is accessible to us clinicians, right, or practitioners, um, and and the work has been done. So there is, it's just that the use of the middle level terms, are, although we know what the ben the benefits or the advantages they are, um, they tend to uh, uh, drive us away from exactly what we're doing and and how. And, and, and to know if what we're doing is working or not, right? So, but the efforts have been made. We can talk about ACT in terms of the principles of behavior analysis. There's nothing that is not behavior analytic about, you know, what we do there. But again, the middle level terms throw us off and we think it's something else and, and you know, something beyond, you know, that. So, but it is not. 
Did I answer your question this time? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I, I know what you're saying. Like, like you, you did. I get. I don't even know if I really asked the question. So, um, but uh, you know, I think again, this is maybe just due to my, you know, lack of understanding of uh, of act and and you know, and maybe to a, a lesser extent my lack of understanding of behavior analysis uh but um um it just seems like act practitioners and act mentors those are those that are that are doing really good work typically any of you folks that have come out of unr um um really spend a lot of time talking about observing those contingencies in in terms of how we're involved in them when it comes to kind of act whereas i think you know i whereas i don't and i mean maybe they do but i don't think the sort of standard bcba rbt sort of supervision interaction spends a lot of time encouraging rbts to focus on their own behavior and and how that plays in those contingencies and in, in the in those sort of contexts um and so you know I'm not saying I, I, I think you're I, I I completely agree that ACT isn't different in that it isn't different. It's just it seems like the practitioners of ACT are spending a lot more time focused on 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 that piece, um, which I think is really important sort of across the principles. Um, and so but it also, I think, can be sadly a bit of a turnoff for folks um that they don't want to spend time thinking about themselves or working on themselves and whatnot i mean i i've been going to therapy for 20 plus years non-stop and probably will till the day i die um, um and uh and it's done wonders for sort of how i practice and how i do my work um um, um but i think a lot of folks wouldn't even think about it going there. Mariella, I think you had a you had a thought. Yeah, go. Cool. Um I was gonna ask you, have you have you attended an act boot camp just yet? I, I have not, no. Okay. Are you are you do, no right or wrong answer? Are you interested? Are you curious? I'm interested and curious. I just uh I'm just so far away uh from these things. It, it's access for me. I uh I, I I was saying to someone earlier I, I went to Baba in June, it was the first conference I went to since 2012 um, uh, because I just I'm just too far off the map to to get anywhere. But yeah, I'd I'd love to go to one for sure. Yeah. Oh, and I and I like the feedback. I think Louisa mentioned of to keep going because the first time, and this was my experience. Mm. You have no idea. You, you know, you don't. You have no idea what you're getting into. You know, you think you're just going to go to a a typical ABAI conference, or, or you're not sure really mm -hmm. what you're getting yourself into and it's it's so different <laughs> to anything else mm. and, and it's it's hard there's like doing the exercises with yourself doing them mm. with strangers next to you mm. it's it's very difficult in that moment um and then exactly. yeah like like we're talking about like you're just after you leave there it is so it's one of the most tiring and draining things at the end of the day because you you learn so much about yourself you're you're actually doing that work, it's exhausting. And then going back the next day, you know, whatever that looks like. But then when you have the opportunity to to go again, now you have an idea a little bit mm. of, okay, I know what's going to happen almost. You think you know, you think you know. And then when you're, you're doing those, those exercises again, it's almost because, you know, like Lisa mentioned, 
going back and, and continuing to do those work, to do that work, because you're, you're again in a different phase, right? You have different experiences now and, and how that shifts. So I definitely encourage the, the ongoing of, of attending those, those boot camps because it is a really different experience too. Um, and something that I, I will echo too of what you mentioned of, of doing those, those act matrices over on yourself. Something that I also enjoy doing is doing like the bullseye values exercises. Mm. So I, to one, identify where those values are, what, what those values are for yourself, as well as where they lie on the bullseye. Because again, even if you have those, like your values can still be the same, but in that phase of life, they can also shift. Um, so I think that's that's really important to see it. And that's okay, right? Of, you know, maybe in this time, this is more important or things aren't, aren't necessary. I'm not necessarily living my life to those values. And I think it's also good to, to understand too in that context of where that family is too, if we want to bring it back to that perspective too. Because even if you're working with with the family within a, let's, let's say six months, so many things can change. And I think taking that into account too, of just how our own values shift in those moments, we also have to have that perspective that things in families' lives can can also shift. So I think those those are where those those things can align and having that self-awareness of us continuously doing that work and, and understanding where families are coming from too. What ACT has helped me with is to um to acknowledge and to realize more, to, to help me realize how I show up in my work with with the families and um and connect with the, the families in different ways because they are different. And so I need to um, get myself to a different level and and realize that I um I am part of what they are experiencing. So whether my relationship with the parents is close enough or whether my, you know, what what, what I'm suggesting or how, how I'm coming across in my practice actually has a, is important, has an, it will influence the outcomes. So it makes me reflect how I am on that day doing what I'm meant to be doing with that specific family. So I think more um, that's in the professional kind of aspect of, you know, how ACT helps me connect with all the, with, with the families and with how I do things. Um, ACT aside, ACT has helped me, uh, you know, in my personal life to face my insecurities and my fears and my, um, you know, uh, thoughts about myself as a practitioner, um, thoughts about myself as a parent and as a migrant and as part of a different culture and, you know, in all those aspects. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in, my, in my practice, I also feel um, that acts act helps me put myself you know in in a in a different level but not necessarily in an inferior level like many of us or i i think you know many professionals who are um in 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 a different culture will feel less equipped to talk about things in you know to to families in that culture and specifically with the families in the uh, predominant of the predominant culture. So I think, you know, I, I, I have found a different voice in myself 
to to feel more secure in what I'm bringing to the family as well. So I not only work with with other Latino families where I feel more at home, but I can also practice and work with uh, families in you know prevalent cu culture. But equally, I would just be very aware of my own thoughts and my own feelings about how I can not be as sufficient, as, you know, effective, as uh, coming across as, as professional, as other practitioners might be like. And, and dealing with those thoughts, it's, it has been hard for me. But um, yeah, that's what has been helpful for. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And also super scary, you know, I, uh, I you know, I think, um, you know, I try not to go down a tangent here, but I do think this is one of the reasons, you know, folks are either afraid to go this direction, afraid to go the ACT direction, or even afraid to sort of admit that ACT is behavior analysis. And we've seen some sort of pushback on, 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 in those areas as well, because it it, it I think it, re it requires you to do that work on yourself. And, you know, I, you know, I, I think it's awesome, um, but it's scary. And, uh, you know, I think for a lot of folks, it would be really difficult to, uh, to, uh, to want to do this on yourself and uh, to think about these things on yourself. I mean, just even thinking about sort of the, the, the sort of culture of, again, uh, you know, sort of against therapy in general, you know, in, in, in the world. And it's, it's very, it's a very, almost a very leftist kind of thing. The world sort of thinks, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, it got to be kind of in something folks don't realize how sort of strongly strong, how strongly their, their own values affect them that they're not even willing to sort of, you know, kind of do this kind of work. So, I think this. I think it's. It seems like an, an an amazing approach to things, but maybe maybe not for anyone. Has there is you know? And there's a bit of a, a tangent, but obviously, you folks are all willing to do this work, and and the results of the studies show that you know it it it's uh, it works really well with you know these populations and all populations. I mean, act as more RCTs than anything else, and. They've crossed over every every possible, you know, sort of problem you can think of in the world, um, um, and and ACT has been used really successfully to address it. Um, do folks find that there's a um, there is a struggle though to get sort of buy-in for ACT from our field? In terms of sort of you know applying applying this stuff and and wanting to do this work because I think this this is also a barrier in, in ways you know you found something that is really powerful and works really well with families and deals with I think it does help with a lot of the difficulties behavior analysts have with with um, you know you know with getting their work done and yet I you know I think myself included I mean I haven't I still don't do act I don't know how to do it. Um, um, why haven't I? What's what's keeping me from that? I think part of it is a fear of being vulnerable and having conversations with others about this kind of stuff. Um, I think that's what it is for me, anyway. Um, um, 
but also I think part of it is just laziness and, <laughs> and some other things there. Um, it, like, uh, did you folks see that as a barrier for getting more folks to want to kind of apply this stuff to to their work? I I agree with you. Uh, I think it's uh, it's scary. I think it's difficult. Uh, historically, our field, uh, our verbal community has reinforced uh, some uh, engagement on rigid behaviors, in consistency, in being systematic. Uh, and that was in a relation of equivalence in, in a sense with the rejection of these uh, new procedures. So I completely understand that this uh, could be a difficult move for some of the members of our community. And I understand that it will be uh, really difficult for some of the members of our organization. For example, if I receive a client that may benefit from some accessions, I can understand that some of my RBTs will be prepared for that, but not all of them. And that's something that we have to take into account. Uh, we all know that, for example, for the RBTs, the 40 hours is not enough uh, to consider that the RBT is fully equipped. Similarly, we cannot expect that just going to a boot camp will get you all the tools that you need to run act. Uh, with your set, with your clients, or even with your team, uh, so it's a it's an ongoing process. It's a process of personal uh, personal growth. Uh, but I understand that it will be a difficult move. Uh, I understand that it's scary. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, something that you have to be aware is that as a VCBA, you need to identify what is the repertoire required to conduct some accessions uh, and to identify what are the uh, weaknesses uh, of, of your team, basically, because uh, not all the members of your team are equipped or are ready to engage in those behaviors. But I think it it is worth it. Is that how you say it? I think it, yeah, I think it's a, uh, I think it worked if you if you engage in that behavior because uh, that increase your uh, psychological flexibility that will decrease your uh, rigidity to roles that could be uh, non beneficial for you and your clients uh, that will in some way may reduce the burnout within your team uh, which is a common problem in the field and that will help. Uh, in some way to take perspective uh, with some of the situations that happen on a daily basis. I will start with that. Yeah, I, I think that with ACT, it's a lot of unknowns. And I think maybe the field is just afraid of all these unknowns. Like, okay, well, mm -hmm. how we've never, we've steered away from private behavior, right? Things we behavior we don't have access to. So how can we objectively measure and observe, right? all these things but I mean like anything things evolve things have to change the contingencies have to change and I feel like sometimes our field is resistant towards that 
Um, and I just, I had these thoughts in my head and now they all disappeared before I was, before I started talking. Um, um, oh gosh, I don't even know. Um, I don't know, maybe it'll come back to me, but um, I think maybe in general, right, in society, there seems to be a little bit more conversations about mental health, you know, things like that. Um, so that, that suggests that there's a need, right, for that. Um, so our field should shift towards that. Um, and as one of the unique things about being a human is that we have language. And so we need to have approaches to address those things, right? I mean, our principles work on, or I guess, I don't know, I don't know if I want to say work on, but they apply to, right? They can influence behavior of non-human animals, but we have thoughts and we speak. And so we need to have approaches to address those things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, maybe people think there's a lot of unknown, but I mean, I think that's part of right science is we have to do things, figure out things, see if it works, if it doesn't work, um, and evolve. I just want to say that it feels strange after a while that people still say that, well, think of act like a whole dress, like I do act or I don't do act, is you have to be dressed up in the act costume, and it's not really. <laughs> it's, it, you can you can't start by just realizing how you impact others, how, you know, your perspective taking skills get to, to, to the point where you realize that the families you're working with are perceiving you in certain way that might influence their behavior and might, might influence the trust or the level of, you know, commitment that they have. And even that, um, I think for me, even that, point where you start realizing where I, I, how I present myself, you know, white uh, clinician, you know, representing the healthcare system might, uh, you know, generate and motivate feelings of anxiety or fear or whatever else um, in this family when I knock at the door to provide services. That, that just that consideration is already dealing with you know, addressing those barriers that the other the families have, and that's that's part of act. That's considering how you present, how others perceive you, and how you can influence their behavior by you being there, whether they perceive you as supportive or not. That is already, you know, involving act for me. Um, I'm wanting to help and being supportive and realizing their needs, not just in the child's assessment. But the overall needs that we talk about um, is part of fact. It's it's viewing the the bigger picture. Um, so there are all the specific little bits that act comes with, but you don't have the to have the um you know the the all or nothing approach to whether you do act or not. I often say I work within the act framework. Um, because that allows me a lot more flexibility as well. I I just wanted to say something, and I think that even more helpful than 
act, it is the, you know, the, the philosophy underlying act. And so in contextual behavior science, we talk about functional contextualism, right? And and that is much a much more, you know, broader approach than, you know, the traditional, you know, behavioral, you know, one like the, for instance, Skinnerian, you know, way of thinking. I think that part of part of the fear comes from talking about private behavior and over behavior. And so when it comes to private, how, so when we, when I tell you, Ben, so we're going to be now um, learning to apply something to a particular problem that has to do with, with private behavior, right? And then automatically you're going to be like, wait a minute, like that sounds like mystical even, like, I don't know what I'm going to find. I don't know what I'm going to be confronted with. And um, and so interbehavioral psychology, the principles of interbehavioral psychology, I think interbehaviorism has a lot of um, important um, applied implications. And from this way of thinking, we don't talk about, there, there is nothing that I need to, there is nothing inside the person, right? There is no other time or place that I need to try to account for in my analysis of the behavior. Your past is here and everything you do here is, your biology is here, your cells are behaving. Your behavior has been already shaped by systems and and other layers above that or, or be below, right? And so when we, I, I think that a philosophical standpoint is helpful in organizing the repertoire of practitioners. If we stick to a more linear, more, I guess, you know, three, four, you know, even five-term contingency analysis, we might still, you know, come, you know, close to something that we are not used to working with. And we're going to be like, oh, no, 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 I don't think I... I am fit, you know, to work with this. I don't know how to work on, on that, right? But if we were to take, you know, the the unit of analysis as, you know, your interbehavior and the person's interbehavior, right? In this interbehavioral field where absolutely everything is present, is in front of you, then then maybe I will say that there is no much organize organization of your repertoire about looking for things where they are not even there you know what i mean so i, I don't know if i'm making myself clear but but so so i think that that and i don't mean to get into philosophy here or anything but but more than act is how is that we are under, understanding behavior and i think that has a huge implication when we take a more interbehavioral approach I think that's, I mean, that's all That's all we need in my view, because once I have the person in front of me, I don't have to be guessing, is the person really understanding? Is the person, why is the person not telling me? Hmm, I'm sure of this or I'm sure of that. I know that 
there are so many, you know, subtle things at the beginning when you're working with someone that they get to become more familiar to you and you get to understand better the person and the stream of behavior of that person in front of you. Um, and so anyway, I would just recommend for practitioners to get on Linda Hayes and Mitch Freiling's book. Um, I think I must have it somewhere. It must be here. This one. Do this homework. Do this homework. I think this getting acquainted with this is going to solve a lot of the problems of approaching um, ACT and just in general, you know, the work with, you know, with the people that you work with, but even with yourself. This is that this is the approach that has gotten me or, or has helped me get unstuck. This is the approach that has helped me be more compassionate with myself. Um, this is the approach that makes me um, observe that and come to understanding that absolutely everything you do makes sense. And, and we might not know or have or, or dissect the layers of context and the impact of those layers of context on your stream of behavior, but they are there. And although I cannot dissect them, I still need to account for the things that I am not, I'm not able to access in terms of that information. How were you shaped up to um, and relevant to this paper culturally, right? To respond in particular ways. Um, so yeah, that's my two cents. Awesome. Love it. Um, that's a great way, I think, to kind of bring us to a close and um, and give some folks some stuff to, to, to look at more. I'm glad you brought up that that book because I was about to ask, and I'm not asking right now, but I was about to ask what is interbehaviorism because I don't even know anything about that. Um, but you you you, already, you gave us a book, so we'll, we'll, we'll look at the book. Um, and maybe I'll bring someone else on to ask them what that is. Uh, next time or maybe i'll ask you that next time when i when i have Evie on um we can kind of dive into that some more i don't want to go back to this article just for a second not to talk not to ask you more questions about it but just to, to sort of point out that you can tell um that natalia was involved in writing this article because it uh it's it is a good this is because it because it's it breaks everything down uh into sort of actionable items it gives you actionable sections um, that's one thing I loved about about your work, Natalia, is 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 it's not just um, um, you know talking about stuff. It it, it really it really gives you know, you always give folks stuff they can do, um, and really clear, nice bold bold. I, I like the bold headings and subheadings, and I don't know if this was all you're doing in the article, but it seems to be a a thing that happens when you when when you're involved in an article the articles that I've read that it it just becomes a really easy to read and. And you know, lots of recommendations on what you can do. Uh, and I could have asked those questions today and you would have just ended up reading the whole article, but it provides great resources on types of assessments you can use, resources available in the field we can use, uh, dives into some of these um these these values that the Latinos hold, um, some common ones, and, and talks about sort of how they apply. So it's just a great resource. Um, and then we can really tell that all all five of you um, um uh, put your heart into it um, um and so I, I think folks really just need to read this and take a look i think i think sometimes the titles of these articles throw people off too if you're not familiar with sort of you know what 
contextual behavior is and those sorts of things. But you could probably remove that section altogether and just um, 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 call it a, a, a tools for enhancing cultural responsiveness and 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 folks will get a lot of, a lot of value out of that. So I really appreciate you guys doing this work and I really appreciate you all taking the time. I'm sorry we lost Mariella in the in the in the zoom boom um and uh yeah and and just thanks so much for for, for you all for coming on it was fan fantastic to see you and sebastian again to meet you and and patricia and louisa and, and mariella for the first time heard a lot about lots about you so super fun thank you thank so you, much ben. yeah and, thank you so much uh, thank you very much ben uh we have to say that uh, we even have more resources. So if somebody mm. reads the paper and yeah. they need some more information, we have some. We have more resources that we couldn't include in the paper because awesome. of uh, the, the limit of words and the mm -hmm. limit of resources that we can publish. But uh, yeah, feel free to get in touch with with us, and we are free to. Uh, collaborate with you guys yeah well certainly if there's any other resources you just want to share that we can add to the show notes that'd be great too absolutely Frank, thank you can i much. just say like one more thing i'm sorry yeah yeah please i, just, I think uh one for me like i want to kind of emphasize this message to when it comes to this kind of work of yeah we were talking about cultural values of a group but um i want to caution people to not read the article and just apply it to every Latino that they encounter mm. because we, you know, people, people might not have those values or how they yes. act in alignment with those values might differ. Um, and we, we do mention that in the article in several places of these values may come up, you know, we use it like the word may or might um, uh, because we can't, you know, lump people into a box just because they maybe come from one country or speak the same language or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and that just goes back to the importance of, right, us doing the work, doing the work on ourselves, which would also, right, mean doing the work for the families that we serve. Um, so I just thought that that was, that's important for people to keep in mind. Yeah, no, that's a really important point. And I think just generally across the board, uh, which makes these sort of cultural responsiveness types cop types of conversations difficult is that you always want to, you know, you you, you just want to get a list, you know, and and be able to take that and go in. But really, it comes down to just being, you know, intentional and curious and and uh, and acknowledging your own biases and and uh, asking lots of questions um, individually. But at the same time, sometimes some of these things are just helpful to know going in. That, that these things could be in place, um, and uh, you know, uh, even as simple as you know, uh, with some cultures, it probably doesn't hurt to take your shoes off every time you go in their house, um, and and you won't cause any problems. So sometimes those things are beneficial too. Yeah, really great, great. Thanks again for coming on, everybody. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye.